Good evening. Do you believe in ghosts? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on. I invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We are keeping the spooky vibes alive all month long. And uh, next week we're talking haunted castles, cobwebs, Foggy Nights and Vincent Price. So join that sleaze, baby. That's right. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover as well. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for five to six years. There's like 140, 150 plus bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films where there's a lot of horror stuff coming out this month that we are certainly going to be talking about. So again, patreon.com slash Lizoids podcast. If you're interested in any of that, and speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week, so we will shout them out here. We had Liam Melinda sign up. We had Kevin Durkin sign up. Uh, Kyle uh, Wilson, uh, Grant Sterling. Uh, we had Max Dunning upgrade from $5 a month to $10 a month, joining us for the monthly virtual screenings, which we try to do at the last Thursday of every month. This one will definitely be a horror-themed one. Uh, we had Philip Marlowe sign up. We had Glenn <laughs> Del Rossi. We had Evan J. Lowe. We had Jake Reimer. Um, Joshua Goolsby, Caleb Wilson, uh, Sam, Aiden Staggs, and we are just going into September here. Uberlan Gisbar, Stavergin, uh, Mark Power, Harry King, Christopher Haney. Wow, you guys were getting excited for the spooky vibes. Dr. William Rosenow, Marshall Hansen, Austin Simpson, uh, Anton Bremsmith. Uh, Paul Meredith and Sam W. So thanks so much to all of you folks for signing up. Hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes. Yes, thank you. That's the uh, one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I can see the stats, I see you right now listening on both those platforms. Give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners, and we appreciate that support as well. And the very last plug for the week, as always, is merch. Uh, if you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. Uh, you guys have thought of a lot of things. Notebooks, pillows, hoodies, posters, pens, everything. Uh, link is in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested. That is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis. And joining me also as always, my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome. I think uh, two weeks uh, would have been the last time uh, you guys over on the main feed uh, would have heard from us. And we would have actually had special returning guest and friend of the show, horror artist Trevor Henderson himself, mm-hmm. who did the art for the show. We had him back on because we were celebrating the release of his new middle school scholastic horror book called Scare Waves, which I believe is available now wherever you get your getting your books from. Um, and we had him on to discuss uh, some visually surreal and imaginative, ostensibly, uh, quote-unquote, kid-friendly <laughs> Japanese body horror creature features. We did Shinya Sukamoto's Hiroko the Goblin from 1991, as well as Hideyuki Hirayama's Haunted School from 1995, both of which had some pretty stellar creature um, uh, effects work, like decapitated heads growing spider legs like out of the thing, <laughs> and claymation zombie hands, and all manner of uh, uh, destruction against... Uh, children, including uh, giant blood geysers uh, <laughs> using box cutters in uh, the Shinya Sukamoto version, which is why I had to say, quote unquote, uh, kid friendly. Yeah, as is tradition on this show, anything that anyone brings on that is quote unquote kid friendly is very questionable in that regard, but we love it yeah. all the same. <laughs> Yeah. So if you haven't heard that episode, that was two weeks ago over on the main feed. Go back and check it out and, and check out Trevor's book, too. Yeah, um, absolutely. Do it. Uh, uh, last week, uh, though, we were over on the Patreon exclusively for the patrons where we were actually doing your patron voted double feature episode or once every two months we have you nominate the double feature for us and we do the most upvoted one at the end of the month. And uh, you guys picked a pretty crazy pairing for last week where we talked about uh, outdated conservative American men who are compelled to go on these very arduous odysseys for the safety and soul of their family members and instead are very much forced to reckon with their own questionable motives and worldviews in John Ford's classic Western, The Searchers, from 1956, starring John Wayne, um, as obviously the brutal racist Confederate cowboy trying to save his niece from a Comanche tribe. Um, And uh, we paired that, or you guys, I guess, more precisely paired that with Paul Schrader's neo-noir variation on a very similar plot in Hardcore from 1979, where he updated very similar material and character, but via his own Midwest Calvinist father taking the place of the role of the Wayne Cowboy. And (laughs) instead of taking on uh, his his racism, he instead takes on the California (laughs) underground porn industry uh, to... uh, Get his daughter back from the evil clutches of sex work and uh, back into his snowy and religious home. Yep, just George C. Scott going down the uh, the underbelly of L.A. and and just screaming at people until he finally finds his daughter. It's it's great cinema. That's right. So you haven't heard that at that episode, patreon.com slash Sleezoids podcast. That was last week's bonus episode. Moving on to this week, it is, uh, as I'm sure most heard already by the change in intro music, uh, <laughs> a, a Jamie classic that comes back only once a year. We are kicking off Spooktober this week, an entire month of the show of ghouls and chills and uh, things thereof. Um, <laughs> not that we, you know, very much neglect the horror genre yeah. throughout the year or anything, We're doing but that two we weeks ago. wholly... 
That's right, but we do wholly commit to it for the entire month and try to get a diversity of horror yeah. going because I feel like sometimes we frequently go back to certain you know versions of it. It's nice to spend the whole month on it and try to get a different kind of style of horror going for every single week of the month. And to kick us off, we have a very special returning guest with us. He is a uh, cinema studies uh, teacher at the University of Toronto. He is the contributing editor at Cinemascope. He is a critic and a writer for places such as The Ringer and Sight and Sound and many others. He's also a very wonderful author with beautiful books on the Coen brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, and most recently, David Fincher Mind Games, which I can't recommend uh, to everyone enough if you are a fan and maybe anticipating David Fincher's new film, The Killer, coming out uh, on Netflix very soon. Uh, I myself have been going through it chapter by chapter each time I've been revisiting the film. It's a nice little companion to have. But that guest is Adam Naiman. Adam, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Good. Good to have you. Very good. Welcome back. It's been a little while. Two years, I think. You mean since you started the intro or since I was on the... <laughs> hey, you know I, I, we, I have a question Hey, hold on. We've, we've gotten this good. We've got this down to a science. No, you guys... You, That's yeah, like a seven-minute intro. <laughs> no, my, my, right. my, question, my, my question is, you mentioned contributing editor to, to Cinemascope, so I am privy, the same way that you're saying you're watching people listing, you can tell people are listing and whatever. You know, I'm privy to who, to who the famous subscribers to Cinemascope are. Are there, are there famous people... Who, who subscribe? Like, like, what is the what is the highest level of celebrity who is a paid Ooh. subscriber to your podcast? Don't Ooh, say don't say who they subscri- don't say who they are, but like, and I don't mean someone who like says I'm Vincent Price. You know, like, is there? <laughs> do you guys have like yeah, quasi quasi Marlowe listed? Uh, yeah, right. Do, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you have do you have quasi celebrity uh, patrons? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I maybe honestly. don't pay enough attention. Jamie doesn't have access. I keep that information all a secret from him. But we, we also have way too many people signing up with uh, fake names. So right. we very well could have someone hiding in the shadows. Kind of like how Ro- Robert Pattinson claims to be on film Twitter, you know? Like, we might have someone like that. He, he, probably, he, I'm, he probably subscribes. That's a good bet. I would, I would, yeah, let's go with that for sure. Robert, if you are a subscriber, please, we would love to talk to you and talk about some films. That yeah, you, like. you could, you could, um, you could save Canadian film culture with the money in your tuxedo pants, pal, if you're listening. You could uh, even use a fake name right. if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, I'm, uh, I'm well, I'm happy to be, to be back. I should say that Josh was in the trenches uh, at this year's TIFF for Cinemascope covering films, both sleazoid and not. Showing a really, showing a really nice range of critical acuity across uh, a, 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 a wide variety of films, and it was very nice to have you as part of our, uh, as part of our coverage. It's a nice thing. Oh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm. Someone needed to write about Pool Man ultimately <laughs> at the end of the day. So yeah, was, someone had to fall on that blade, and I was happy to talk about and, Chris Pine for and, everyone. And amazingly, you were not nearly the the hardest I read on Pool Man. You <laughs> seemed to suggest it was a gigantic piece of garbage, which I'm sure it is. But <laughs> I was kind of reading yours, and I was like, "This is not as mean as like the the meanest I've read." So you know, cool. <laughs> so, c- certainly, certainly, this is not the last we'll hear of Pool Man. You know, so <laughs> no. Talk Every, about everyone talk. will be very, very excited about uh, Chris Pine's directorial debut. Yeah, the, um, the the only film at TIFF I believe that showed on thirty five millimeter, correct? Yeah, except for I went to the premiere screening specifically to see the print, and they didn't get it working. Oh, so man. we watched a DCP. Oh, jeez, <laughs> that's such a that's such a good twist. Yeah, it that's, was wonderful. Maybe that's why you didn't like it. You know, just not the quality. 
that you were looking yeah, for. Yeah, that sheen. Yeah, it lo- it lost its ontological meaning, being you know digital <laughs> and not and not celluloid. You know, it didn't mean anything anymore <laughs> if it's not shot on on film. If it's not indexical, it's it's useless, pool man. Anyway, and, and, yes. and, and anyway, you, it was it was nice to run into you, Tiff. I saw you at some good good screenings i think we saw richard linklater's hitman together which was a good time we did and what a blast uh, what i can't a, wait for people to see it yeah what a blast and uh yeah happy to be on here talking about literally my favorite movie of all time which is very well nice. i was gonna say oh, yeah. last time we had you on you were talking hitchcock shadow of a doubt and you also brought on the 80s horror film the the stepfather as the yeah. pairing and we were talking a little bit about you know the dark impulses lingering underneath domesticity or normalcy or small towns. We had a great time talking uh, to you to you about those. But when we were talking about kind of bringing you back on at some point, there were two films that personally I really wanted to have you on for that I knew we were going to cover on the show at some point. And I was like, I don't know who I would want to talk about those films more than, than Adam. He's someone who really loves these films. Yeah. One of them, obviously, you put on your sight and sound top 10 best films of all list recently. And these are films that I genuinely associate with you like a name and core is what i will kind of call it for the time <laughs> well, being. the other we'll and the other, discuss and the other what one, that means when the, we go through it <laughs> and the other one wasn't far off right because yeah. i mean just to get the sight and sound thing out of the way there's no such thing as the 10 best films of all time i'm i think that uh, i'm I, I believe in a plurality of approaches you know people should do whatever they want with 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 that the consensus will always even out you know like, you know, rules of the game in 2001 will be there. And there's nothing wrong with putting them on your ballot anyway. But, uh, yep. you know, Don't Look Now is sort of the center film of my ballot. And the other movie that we were going to talk about could have been there. Right. So, you know, it, yep. it, it, we're, 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 we are talking about rarefied air here. Yeah, well, I mean, I I knew to kind of I was kind of just, you know, we it's we pretty far into the show and we haven't talked about these films and I mm-hmm. really like both of these films. And I subconsciously, I think I was kind of like saving these ones because I was like, I want to hear Adam talk about those ones oh. on my own show. It's like kind of have, you know, <laughs> but it's just one of those things, too, where as a result, normally we go, you know, wh- what did you pick for us this week? And I kind of thrust this one on you uh, a little bit, maybe is more appropriately here. Um, but uh, Adam, what two films are we talking about today? And very briefly, what kind of unites these films together in your view as movies that really speak to you well as i as i think i let slip about uh, 50 57 seconds ago uh, one of them <laughs> one of them is uh, nicholas rogues uh, quite canonical uh, chiller don't look now one of the most acclaimed british films of all time uh, a british film shot and set largely in venice with uh, you know undertones of the occult, adapted from a short story from Daphne du Maurier, who's one of the great, you know, sort of I wouldn't call her a genre novelist, but a a kind of horror horror adjacent writer. You know, her work ended up being adapted in, in film terms into movies like Rebecca and The Birds. And not only do I think Don't Look Now is in the class of those films, you know, I it's my favorite Daphne du Maurier adaptation of all time, probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and then the other is. Uh, George Sweezer's uh, Dutch thriller, The Vanishing, original uh, Loose, uh, made in 1988. Uh, also not a movie that lacks for visibility or champions. Like, these are not obscure movies. They're both, for example, uh, you know, ratified by the Criterion Collection. In fact, I think Don't Look Now just came out today in a 4K Blu-ray. Yeah, people listening this week, you can go get Don't Look Now in 4K right now. Yeah, So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, they're both movies with a certain pedigree and i think i think the vanishing kind of has sort of like a consensus modern classic status as well 
Um, you know, there are movies whose virtues are pretty clear. In the case of Don't Look Now, it's one kind of style, which is incredibly, uh, you know, virtuosic and 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 complicated and sort of begs to be, you know, taken apart and, and deconstructed. In the case of The Vanishing, very different style, kind of a very plain, uh, sort of like a, a plain, you know, neo-Hitchcockian kind of simplicity as a suspense movie. But I think what they have in common, and it says something about me that I rate them so highly, is they have a, a very kind of morbid existential flavor, right? Mm-hmm. Where they are sort of both films about characters to whom, let us say, the world is trying to speak, right? Whether the world is speaking to them through signs and wonders or through uh, characters sort of, you know, trying to dissuade them from these quests or trying to get them to question their obsessions. In, in one film, this obsession with a dead child. In the other film, this obsession with um, a disappeared girlfriend. And, like, they don't listen to the world or the universe or the movie around them, right? And in doing so, they kind of become the final piece in a sort of puzzle. I think in The Vanishing, it's very much the final piece in a narrative puzzle. In Don't Look Now, it's kind of the final the final piece in a, a spiritual kind of existential puzzle. And I guess, you know, I really love movies where characters kind of end up right in that place to kind of punctuate their own story. And mm-hmm. often in, in very hapless... Uh, very very hapless kind of ways you know there's a, a japanese comic book where the the character discovers the hole in the side of the mountain do you know that one and realizes no. that the, the 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 hole the hole is the exact size and shape that he is and he's sort of like <laughs> and he's like this is my hole that's that's both of these movies which you found your hole in these and, movies. Well, and, and 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 the thing about that is there's something simultaneously extremely satisfying about the way these movies build and resolve these enigmas, these narrative enigmas, these spiritual enigmas, these questions of like what on earth is going on. But again, the satisfaction and the resolution is very fatalistic, you know, very mm-hmm. morbid, and brings the viewer, whether they like it or not into a pretty direct contemplation of, uh, you know, death, which is the great fear and the great animating terror of a lot of horror movies. And I find the ways that these two movies are scary is interesting to talk about because neither of them are really classics of jump scare, brute force Mm -hmm. horror, or even particularly transgressive imagery, but they're terrifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, no, there, but there's something to be said about, you know, both I find pretty rigorously controlled and kind of structured around sure. very specific grief-stricken, you know, absences or yeah. an, an obsession and predestination and convergences and happenstance in a very interesting um, way. Obviously, I think Don't Look Now, we'll get into it, takes on definitely a little bit more of a subjective intensity, I guess you could say, as it as it builds and especially the editing patterns to it. Um, well, well, whereas that, the, the vanishing, I like the word plain to it, where I mean, it, it definitely has a very a, a grimness and a bleakness to it. But I sure. find something it, it's creepy in a more low key way for me, whereas mm-hmm. don't look now I find pretty harrowing in some of the specifics. Well, and it's such a contrast of directors because Nick Rogue is sort of, you know, one of the real you know, you know, Hellcat kind of auteurs of a certain period of film history, you know, very high fashion, modish, 
um, you know, experimental director who ended up working on pretty big scale a lot of the time with pretty big stars. I mean, that run he had in the early 70s, he was sort of one of the real, you know, leading lights of international art cinema. And you contrast that with, you know, Spurlos, which is made by George Sleezer, who's a director of very little distinction and who ended up becoming kind of infamous for this bizarre thing he did of remaking his own movie in English, which I do want to get to. I think the American yes. remake of The Vanishing, in one way, I actually think it's extremely... I've never seen it, so we'll have to ask you about it when we actually yeah. break it down. It reminds yeah. me of like what Michael Haneke did, because didn't he do that with... Um, with with Funny Games. It's, yeah. It's, ab- it's absolutely like Michael Haneke, except I find Squeezer, who's he's since passed away, I, the piece I wrote about that film for The Ringer, I talked about what I thought his motives were, and I actually think they have a lot to do, in a weird way, with actually like what The Vanishing is about. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so with, so with Don't Look Now, you have this quite canonized director who still is a bit of an oddity. I mean, I don't think Nicholas Rogue is a, a household name. Maybe he's like a dorm room name. Like he's not a household name, but I mean, he's certainly a director with a certain style mm-hmm. uh, versus sure. this kind of this journeyman, you know, who adaptation. It's not like the movie came fully formed from George Sleezer's consciousness or anything, but he he hit the mother load. In a way, and you know, one little tantalizing thing I'll say for anybody listening, but I think it sounds like we're going to do the vanishing second, but it is one of the favorite films of all time of uh, a director you may have heard of named Stanley Kubrick, who Mm -hmm. uh, was apparently quite taken by every aspect of it. And George Sleazer really dined out on that story for years that, you know, Kubrick, who had made The Shining, you know, called him to be like, he scared you're, the guy who made The yeah, Shining. Your, yeah, your, mo- your movie is scary, right? Yeah. So I think, I think that's fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that being said, I think we are going to jump right into these here. Uh, let's kick things off. Let's, uh, let's start with Don't Look Now. Oh, God, yeah. We are talking Don't Look Now, the 1973 British horror film directed by Nicholas Rogue, adapted from the 1971 short story of the same name by Daphne du Maurier, as uh, Adam already mentioned, also uh, previously adapted by Hitchcock uh, into uh, Rebecca and the Birds, um, uh, adapted by screenwriters Alan Scott and Chris Bryant, and of course starring Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Now, I think this is our, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jamie, this is our second time talking about Rogue uh, directing. He's come up a couple times for shooting some of the films that we've talked about. Yes. But I believe previously we've only talked about The Man Who Fell to Earth earlier in the year with Brianna Ziegler, who came on the podcast. And right. we talked about his very psychedelic, erotic, sort of science fiction, sort of art movie sort of art movie starring david bowie as this you know beautiful vulnerable alien who in the process of trying to kind of save his home planet instead overdoses on american culture and money and ends up sort of hypnotized and and corrupted by it but i remember when we talked about that we were you know really stunned specifically by the visuals and by the editing patterns and we talked a little bit about 
with Brianna, you know, the fact that he started his career as a cinematographer doing London studio camera operating and sending second unit photography, uh, which, which, which got him his break in doing, you know, second unit work on like a little film called Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> uh, which almost resulted in Peter O'Toole in the lead role in, um, the man who fell to earth instead of Bowie. Um, and, uh, you know, very impressed David lean enough that he also brought him on to be the director of photography on Dr. Shivago. Um, and, uh, you know, soon he was DPing for Roger Corman, uh, Mask of Red Death, which is a good connection for next week. So we're going to yeah. be talking about Corman and Vincent Price next week. Um, and uh, also, I believe, Francois Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451 as well, which uh, I think Julie Christie was somehow connected to all of these as well. So there's a, there's a lot of connections going on here. Uh, but he eventually geared his way up to um, directing, um, which uh, we talked a little bit briefly about uh, with Sean Fennessy because he co-directed the 1970 uh, psychedelic sort of like sexual gangster art movie starring Mick Jagger performance, mm-hmm. um, which was alongside the the Demon Seed um, and White of the Eye director Donald Camel, which also starred Julie Christie. Um, which that is what kickstarted his kind of seventies runs of things that people would be more familiar with walkabout from 1971, obviously this film and the man who fell to earth. Um, so this is a, so second time talking about, uh, rogue, I think also second time talking about Julie Christie. Cause the only other time we talked about her was with Sean Fennessy doing demon seed, which was a very <laughs> funny introduction to Julie Christie, who I think <laughs> does an incredible job selling the emotion and tension of being essentially sexually assaulted by her own high tech house is the perspective of that film. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's but great. it's, it's a little, a little bizarre that, you know, we haven't done like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or, you know, something mm-hmm. a little maybe Nashville or something, you know, something a little bit people might be, even some of the baby ones like shampoo or, heaven can wait or something like that um but she is here alongside donald sutherland who i believe the only other time he has come up on the show was the dirty dozen uh his men on a mission 60s movies where he was alongside legends like lee marvin and john cassavetes and charles bronson um and uh which also got him that 1970s role too in the hangout war film kelly's heroes with uh, clint eastwood right. and obviously the you know uh, hawkeye in in mash as well which would be which would be huge for him oh and uh, jfk um, <laughs> Oh my God, I almost forgot of the course. incredible single scene, a Donald Sutherland cameo in, so in JFK. Good in that scene. <laughs> we went on, we went at, at, at length about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, hot off Julie Christie's success in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, one of the all time great downbeat snowy Westerns alongside the great silence uh, and Donald Sutherland's in uh, Pacola's paranoid neo-noir clute uh, with, with, with Jane Fonda. Rogue had the idea to bring these two together as a married couple uh, and parents uh, grieving the recent death of their child, Christine, and who experience uh, over the course of the film this very supernatural, possibly psychic and ghostly encounters on a trip to Venice as a result of this psychological pain, primarily in the form of visions that Sutherland is experiencing and that an old blind psychic woman you know, says that he's, she's communicating with, with their daughter and uh, Laura, who Julie Christie is playing seems to kind of welcome these uh, and, and be reassured by this sort of afterlife connection while John remains very rational and, and skeptical and the film for anyone who hasn't seen it is primarily Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie kind of doing this twin dance as this relationship sort of starts to uh, decay mm-hmm. and crumble uh, inside Venice, which is a decaying crumbling city. And, you know, we experience uh, this through rogue, uh, you know, doing some very, very beautiful location work in, in Italy and in the churches and the canals Incredible, and the alleys. Yeah. And, uh, 
and some genuinely, uh, you know, sort of supernatural clairvoyant uh, elements. And, you know, his his very, at this point, uh, uniquely fragmented and kind of fractured impressionistic well, the, style. Yeah, well, on the point of that impressionism, the one uh, loose end to tie up in terms of influence, because you're so right that there's this, like, little community of super cool people in film history who sort of seem to have these connections between them, right? Like lean mm-hmm. and Corman. I mean, the one to also mention is that Christie had starred for Richard Lester in a film called Petulia, right? Which mm, is, I haven't seen that one actually, which is, which is, uh, uh, an incredibly impressionistic sort of, you know, hugely, <laughs> you know, hugely subversive movie about a, a socialite who kind of, you know, is, Played by Julie Christie, kind of this portrait of contemporary uh, American life kind of just revolves around her. It's like a really quite a savage, satirical, you know, strange movie. But it has this kaleidoscopic cross-cutting with Rogue as the cinematographer, right? It was the Mm. last movie he shot before he came a director and cutting between these different strands to create this sort of like overall tapestry, these unexpected, you know, juxtapositions, this simple plot made into a kind of uh, a puzzle. And again, to be clear, the the editor wasn't um, rogue. It was Anthony Gibbs, but Anthony Gibbs would then go on to work on Don't Look Now. So coming out of that, Mm. um, you know, coming out of that British... Uh, you know, 60s, 70s movement uh, is sort of the last strand of that. And certainly, um, oh, sorry, not, it wasn't Gibbs on Don't Look Now, it was Graham Clifford, but certainly out of that collaboration between Rogue and Julie Christie on Petulia, you sort of see the last strand of, of, of Don't Look Now kind of falling into place right before he he becomes a director on performance. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's interesting we're talking about, you're talking about doing bits of price next week and Mask of the Red Death. I mean, the cinematography that Rogue did for Corman, for instance, is so juicy, right? You know, it's yeah. so juicy and saturated, these incredibly mm-hmm. vivid colors and this idea of color. I mean, not to make it like a cliche, but color as a kind of character or color as having a particular character within the film is either associated with different people, different di- different emotions, different sequences. And you can see Don't Look Now sort of, di- you know, taking that and distilling that just very famously into the use of the the, the red raincoat, you know, the, the, the red, they call mm-hmm. it the Mac jacket that character of Christine wears. I mean, in some ways, Don't Look Now has a kind of desaturated color palette and parts of it for such a spectacularly well shot movie are really quite ugly or really kind of pale. That's the morbidity of it. You for know, sure. The, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot ground, of like grounded right? or sort of like earth tone yeah. kind of approach to yeah. shooting Venice. But, sure. but still shot by Anthony B. Richmond, who we've talked about before because of, you know, how experimentally he kind of shot the man who fell to earth and, obvi- and too obviously how grotesquely textured but lyrical looking he made Candyman, just one of the most beautiful yeah. horror mm-hmm. films uh, ever. And so the same thing here is, you know, he does approach a little bit of, you can tell that Rogue asked him for a little bit of groundedness to the way that it looked, but also how do we get some like modernist reflection imagery? How do we use these architectural surfaces like the hotel versus the eerie canals that almost have this kind of ancient quality to them? How do you get some uncanny zooms in the film or a burst of like anxious handheld during a certain sure. moment and stuff? So, you know, there's there's a lot of choices made there to make it a little bit more surreal. 
Yeah, and then to get the city to perform the different roles you want, then you have these little touches that you can completely control, and they're not a function of architecture or found location, but, you know, you know, costume design and color palette, like the red jacket, which just activates the city around it in such a fascinating way, right? Mm-hmm. It's one yeah, you, th- you can see that thing running in the background of a shop. Background it's of there, shop. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's, you know, one thing to find a labyrinth, another thing to have that red splash and to have that associated so much with danger and death and blood and this possible, if we manage to get to it, you know, this bizarre subplot in the film where, you know, for backgrounded against the main couple grieving for their child, you have like, you know, the Venetian police ro- roaming around in boats looking for a serial killer of prostitutes. It's like, a, it's like, it's like a giallo is going on. It's right back, of a giallo. Yeah. It's a giallo going on in the background of the movie, which <laughs> ends up sort of converging in an interesting way. So all of which is to say that Rogue, I think Pauline Kale said when she reviewed Don't Look Now that he had more visual strategies than any working director who she knew, right? So mm-hmm. that so all those filmmakers he worked with were so fascinating, like Lean and Lester and 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 and, and Corman and you know then his collaboration with with Donald Kamel, sort of this weird mix of like, like conversant in noir and conversant in horror, certainly aware of like you know how to use you know aspects of that old British classicism, inflected by advertising and inflected by the avant garde and almost proto music video ish too. Because no movie consolidated Bowie's persona like Man Who Felt Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Which which isn't yeah. a music video, and he's not a rock star, but it has music video aesthetics all over it. Yeah. So this is just to say Rogue's very resourceful, attentive filmmaker who's willing to try lots of stuff around the time he makes this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's interesting seeing that kind of approach given to what is, you know, true to sort of De Maurier, like a, you know, a very occult driven, you know, genuinely gothic yeah. kind of ghost story and something that kind of unites both of these films a little bit, too, is that both of them are, I think, kind of plots or stories you would, I think most viewers would be familiar with if they were to throw it on. You've seen people haunted, you know, by a supernatural ghost. You've seen them take on a serial killer. You've seen concepts like these. And I just don't, like, both of these films have such a unique approach to what would that textual experience be like for a character in that moment, you know, in these, you know, and, and I think a lot of people since have obviously tried to replicate that and made these very like, you know, it's it's actually about the psychology or the grief of this character mm-hmm. more than it is necessarily the plot. And I think there's just something so, I don't know, there's something genuinely unsettling about the approach taken here and the experimental, you know, cutting patterns that he does while also borrowing some classical grammar, taking some things from Hitchcock, taking some things from Giallos and, you know, even some sort of like more French avant-garde kind of elements as well and fitting those pieces together, taking a story about someone dealing with the randomness or chaos of, you know, their own life and of being confronted with the idea of their own mortality and just being like how inexplicable and surreal of an experience you know would that actually be to live inside of for a little while how eerie and doom laden would it feel let's talk i mean let's talk about the as an adaptation talk about the divergence from the text which is the masterpiece within the masterpiece which is the opening sequence right i mean i mean i mean in the short story it's just established through exposition that the main characters have lost uh, a child. And even the details of that are sort of different, 
you know i mean the mm. yeah it's the, it's it's, it's meningitis right i think i read in the original yeah, short story meningitis in the original short story you know it's 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 something that you know is is described but not seen the movie opens with this six and a half seven minute uh sequence right that it just is as a self-contained thing so spectacular and it's very upsetting which is it shows the couple at home the family at home you know on their country home which happens to be nearby near a pond and using cutting that's half hitchcockian in that kind of suspense way and then again as you say closer to the french new wave like this kind of associative montage where the matches are between objects and shapes and colors you you just build to this drowning and it's all about the absolute fluke of it, the tragedy of it, the lack of fault. Like it's kind of about neglect where the parents aren't out there paying attention. But like there are two kids playing together and obviously the kids are very familiar with the property. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, is it, it, you know, is it the kid's fault? Is it the sibling's fault for not watching them? It's tinged with dread and tinged with a sense of fate Mm-hmm. And the mot- and all the motifs that he introduces, starting of course with water, yeah, and the you mm-hmm. know Christine and her red jacket, the rainy pond, the and rainy the church pond. light kind of coming through a little yeah. bit, yeah, and the idea that this is then you know the counterbalance with the work that he's doing. You see these slides he's taken of these, you know these 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 Venetian cathedrals that he's going to want to be doing work on, helping to restore them, and the. You know the uh, uh, yeah he's helping specifically restore the mosaics on them, which was just you know catnip for any writer to be like. Or Nicholas Roeg has formed a mosaic. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and Julie 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 Christie is reading this book called you know Beyond the Fragile Geometry of Space, which is like you know the bit in Heat where you know Robert De Niro's like I'm reading about metals. You know, it's like it's a book yeah. that it's a book that's very tied to what's sort of going on. You get shattering glass. You get all this, you know, you get you get a glass of water that gets yeah, knocked the, the, the over. The sequence instructs you how to watch the movie, how to pay attention to the split second yeah. implications, to look for matching and rhyming images with dread and 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 premonition, well, and, well, while also giving you that inexplicable kind of sensory experience that dislocates and removes the groundedness of what otherwise is the groundedness of the images, which is kids just playing in a pond in a backyard. Like it's a totally normal thing that is just made shattering and horrifying. And and obviously concludes on Donald Sutherland's just animalistic howling in slow motion as he's like pulling his daughter from the muddy pond. Yeah. It's, just, it's just horrible. Which is which is a hor- which is a horrifying image. And that's the and that's the thing is there's a certain kind of film or filmmaker. It's a small category, and you know you, we won't go through every filmmaker that fits in it. But you know some who I think of whether it's a filmmaker like you know, Chris Marker, a filmmaker like Claire Denis or Lucrezia Martel, where you have stuff that works on the intellectual and the visceral level simultaneously, like you don't have to choose. And so that's part of what I find about the opening of Don't Look Now is it's hugely, you can intellectualize about it and take it apart. You also feel it in a place that's so deep because it's such a terrible thing to see, you know, this father, you know, holding their their, their, their dead child. But then the other thing about it on top of all of that is it's so distinctly cinematic, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a literary sequence. It, 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 it is telling the story in 
pure film grammar. Rogue called it an exercise in film grammar. You're so right about it teaching you how to watch the movie. This is a movie that teaches you how to watch it. It gifts you with the power of second sight before you even know you have it because it's going to repeat exactly, so many. Yeah. It's going to repeat so many of those gestures and images and cuts and associations. It's something that. And I know that there's imagistic ways of writing and there's ways of writing that can kind of evoke that 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 psychic slipstream, but it's like you have a book and then you have a completely cinematic realization of it. And for seven minutes it's purely cinematic. And then the movie has to take a deep breath and become a bit more conventional, right? And it does. Yeah. It it settles into a slightly more conventional kind of glossy occult thriller with then some other incredible things worth talking about, like the sex scene and the use of Venice. But those seven minutes, when people say they love uh, Don't Look Now, I think what they probably mean more than anything is that, like me, those seven minutes are frigging amazing. Yeah. And yeah. then the rest of the movie uh, is in conversation with them for the next two hours. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite things is how like fluid his editing is when he's he's kind of um, he's going crossing between the, the two parents talking about the children inside the house yeah. and then the kids actually playing. And then and then as it kind of comes together, he starts to it's fluid, but there's also a bluntness to like him showing a shot of her just blurred under the water and you can't see her face anymore, but you can just see how red that coat is under, uh, under the water. And then him kind of having a realization that there's something off. He doesn't know why, but there's just something off and then them running together. I just love that he mixes a fluidity to a, a very blunt, I, you don't want to, it's not violent by any means, but it just feels, um, just very aggressive the way that he throws in some of those images along with these things that feel a little bit more flowing. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I mean, violence is the word because the cutting <laughs> does become violent and it's one of those times. It's razor sharp. He's stabbing you with those. Yeah. Cuts. Yeah. <laughs> He's stabbing with those cuts. I mean, the, the editing is the, the editing is not invisible and all of a sudden you feel like this film can do things to you. Right. Yeah. And that's, There's even and that's a sharpness with like him him grabbing the body and then turning the corner and the wife sees it for the first time and it's just yeah. her her just raw scream just a terrifying yeah. moment and then drilling into the uh, into the church, the church restoration right as the, as, yeah. as, as the match cut yeah yeah like I, I know what you mean like there is a fluidity to that but it's still harsh yes yeah exactly exactly yeah no it's it, it's it's the sort of thing that. It takes your breath away, not just the first time you see it, but the 10th time you see it. And Rogue is, that's mm-hmm. why I think there's all kinds of ways, I think, that we can talk about directors having an eye or directors' work being beautiful. I mean, for Rogue, I think the beauty of his movies and the eloquence of his movies stems from a really specific idiosyncratic way of seeing the world, which is the images in his films are simultaneously completely sharp and yet uncannily recursive, right? You never feel like you're seeing anything for the first time. And mm-hmm. he's trained you to do that. Even when you're shocked, you're also sort of like, you, Josh, you used a word earlier that is the absolute word for this movie, which is convergence, right? Mm-hmm. Everything kind of converges back and you almost feel like your own subconscious or your own spectatorship is kind of making the movie in front of you mm-hmm. because because that's how it wants you to feel while you're, while 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 you're watching it, it's it's such a powerful, it's such a powerfully conceived and realized 
adaptation of that material, but it also trusts the material as it goes on to kind of have its own spookiness, right? That once they're in Venice, they run across these older sisters who sort of claim to be in touch with the spirit world, and most of the plot is just catalyzed by the idea that they tell the couple that they can talk to their daughter, and Julie Christie's character likes the idea, and Donald Sutherland's character doesn't. And that's where the tension for, like, the first half of the movie comes from, is do you want to mess around with this? Do you believe in this? Do you not want to mess around with it because you don't believe it and it's nonsense? Or subconsciously, is the Sutherland character worried about doing this because he kind of knows he's going to find something out? Mm Mm-hmm. Why and also uh, seeing is believing, <laughs> and uh, and you know and 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 I think that on on some level he's you know we're meant to assume that they've had a pretty rough you know grief stricken yeah. couple months to get to the place that they are where they are in Venice and you know and he sees that there is a sense of comfort even if he doesn't believe it even if he's like yeah this woman's just pretending to be this blind fable like psychic witch who's saying you know your daughter is happy your daughter's fine she's still with you and he kind of sees this as a moment moment of healing for obviously his 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 wife he's you know he hasn't seen her this happy in in however long and uh even if he's skeptical he's like there's some sort of peace maybe coming from this but he is a little you know weirded out as anyone would be if any a random italian woman came up to you and was like i can see your dead child and uh <laughs> i she, she she wants to speak to you and especially too because she doesn't want to just speak nice things to the mother she also wants to communicate to the father that he is in deep deep danger mm-hmm. uh, and obviously on some level it's it's implied that he might have a form of this sort of psychic sight that this woman has and maybe that the film already revealed to us that he does have the way that he could tell that something was wrong with the daughter way before the mother could and which is why he got to the pond in the time that he did and there's obviously kind of a quality um to this where you know is he you know, going to, you know, is he end up going to kind of believing in this? Is he going to chase this? Is this something that, you know, is this something, is this a paranoid kind of delusion that they are egging on? Or is this actually something that is taking, um, taking sort of tangible place when he sees a little red coated figure running around that might be his daughter when he starts to see bodies piling up in water in the same way that his daughter died in the water and these recurring images and his subjective perspective on them kind of blend together for us. And and it can't be overstated how much for anyone who hasn't seen the film and is trying to construct some idea of the plot and the narrative, it can't be overstated how much Venice does heavy lifting in this movie to give this all a kind of cogency. Like this is an ancient city sinking into this, sinking into the sea at all times. (laughs) A waterlogged city, but also one where even just going for an evening walk or going out to dinner is this, you know, Borgesian labyrinth, right? And Mm -hmm. it it almost gets to the point, because some people's issues with the film or with Rogue in general, they say, well, you know, he's an incredible visual stylist and a conceptualist, and he's not much of a, a dramatist. And sometimes when he tries to, you know, evoke feelings and conversations between people, they fall flat. I mean, this movie mitigates that in one way by being an occult movie and a horror movie where, you know, the dialogue and situations are pretty unrealistic, so that's fine. But I mean, man, it it almost doesn't matter to some extent what people are saying in this movie or how they're saying it because the scenery is just speaking to everything that's going on, Mm -hmm. you know? 
this sense of distraction, this sense of fear and vulnerability and just being trapped in your own head. I mean, that's the architecture and the layout of the city. That stuff is also enduring in ways that for people who haven't seen the movie, like you haven't seen Don't Look Now, you've seen a hundred movies try and do that. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, even stuff that becomes like direct homage in the oddest places, like the last 30 minutes of Casino Royale, where you have Eva Green and her red dress being, you know, carted around Venice. I mean, it's a bond. That's right. Even that is like, let's do a don't look now. Mm -hmm. But any, but any time you've sort of, you know, had people say, oh, you know, look at, look at this movie where this city becomes almost a kind of a, a psychic map. It's like, that's from this film and it's ingenious how they how well, how well rogue makes that work to leverage against some pretty dodgy plotting in the last third i say this is my favorite movie of all time and then i always smile and say there is like a good 20 minute stretch of it that is kind of boring <laughs> but like <laughs> yeah. just a just just a teeny tad bit but the boringness which is not boring but this is the stretch where you know the sutherland character comes to either think he's a suspect or the police are seeing him as a suspect in the sex killings going on in the background. So while he's trying to figure out whether his daughter is trying to speak to him through these, these, these I was going to say that this was the most giallo like section of, of yeah. the movie where you're like, Oh yeah. The, the Italian characters have to like briefly glance at each other and deliver some exposition to yeah. one another about. <laughs> and I mean, and it really does have an awful lot of him kind of wandering around wondering whether he's pursuing his daughter or a killer, or is he being pursued? And it has all this kind of sleazy paranoid peeping Tom kind of implication. It's almost like, when Julie Christie goes home halfway through the movie and Sutherland is kind of left with himself and you get all these doppelganger effects, it becomes very intense, but it, like it's a bit languorous, you know, like it really is kind of just like saving itself up for this incredible yeah. it, 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 it doesn't payoff. quite have the power of the sequences where obviously Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie are kind of, there's a tension between yeah. the two belief systems at play where, where it's even coming up in small ways, like when she goes into the church to light the candles and he just goes, you know, I this church fucking sucks. I restore churches. I don't like this church. And she's just like, I think it's beautiful and I'm going to light six candles for our daughter. Like, so Mm -hmm. this is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a tension between them, even if, you know, it's a fairly, you know, not on it, not an an overtly unhealthy relationship. It's just, it's been in a very, very strained period and something that has definitely left scars in it. And it's one of those things where obviously that's, you know, very, very indicative in the, you know, very famous sex scene um, in, in the film, which uh, is just this incredible, this, this incredible thing where the part I always forget that starts it is actually the very, just very naturalistic and kind of awkward buildups to it when, you know, like he, she's commenting on his weight while he's like yeah. brushing his teeth naked in front of her. There's a very natural chemistry, a very real feeling couple in terms of a mm-hmm. situation that that couple where they're very comfortable in front of each other. They're very comfortable in these kind of, you know, awkward interactions that you only would have with someone you're that intimate with. And then when they actually have, their sex scene, it obviously is very famously intercut with them getting dressed for dinner, the aftermath of the sex scene, getting the belts and getting the clothing on, getting the watches on. And so it's explicit images of this erotic passion between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie that was 
so much, uh, you know, I guess so powerful. It was interpreted by a lot of people as unsimulated, including by Warren Beatty, who yeah. tried to get it cut from the film, who was dating Julie Christie, which is just one of those kind of legendary Hollywood yeah. stories. As I was well, watching um, the scene, I was actually thinking, like, just making a little joke to myself, like, you know, Julie Christie's or Donald Sutherland's significant other were probably just watching this, like, wow, Rogue, this is really going on for quite some time. And then I well, I was going to say, do you know what? It also goes read- on for longer than I remember each time that I watch it. I'm like, wow, I actually really did go yeah. through the full like thrust of passion between these two, but also still preoccupied with the aftermath and the disappointment. There's a little bit of tedium in it when it's, you know, cutting from, you know, just this overt erotic sequence and then to, you know, Donald Sutherland, like waiting on the bed, taking a swig of whiskey, all dressed up and waiting for his wife to finish getting, getting dressed and also incorporate some deja vu to it as well. What I've always thought about that scene. And I, I, I think it's a very moving idea, which is that, you know, the literal and figurative sort of idea of climax in that scene is like, it's in the wrong place. The movie's never going to have a happy ending after that. And what I mean by that, and I don't mean it as a joke, what I mean is that for all their trauma and for all their grief, they're still very connected. And that scene shows how incredibly connected they are. There's a sort of sadness, but it's still like real passion and real attraction. It's fucking incredible sex scene, which mm-hmm. is why, mm-hmm. you know, so many other filmmakers have cited it. Steven Soderbergh has said it's one of his favorite scenes, and that's where you get some of the influence of the, the love scene. For out of sight. For, right? for, for out of sight. But I mean, once you've seen that in the movie, you kind of feel like they're not going to go back to there. Like that could almost be the ending of a different version of this film where that's what's healing. I don't mean, you know, like if your kid dies, you know, have sex and you'll feel better. <laughs> but like, but there's, but there's a reason that Lars von Trier put his homage to it at the beginning of Antichrist, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's, yeah. it's like in Antichrist, Antichrist kind of collapses Don't Look Now into like the beginning where it's like, what if the sex scene in Don't Look Now and the kid dying in Don't Look Now happened at the same time? You know, that's like the joke at the beginning. <laughs> that's of the just episode. Lars von Trier's brain at work. That's just <laughs> Lars von Trier's brain. But here you have, there's a certain healing there and a comfort with themselves and the idea of life going on, which is very much what that lovemaking is about. But then it's like, but now the movie's just started. And Mm -hmm. kind of they never get back to that place. I think they'd be capable of it. And the movie doesn't turn them into like enemies or pull them apart artificially. But No, but it's it's, it's kind of unbalancing, right? That they go from that to going out for dinner and getting lost in Venice. Exactly. In in the alleys and, you know, like it's a a very interesting position to put us in with them. Well, and then they spend the rest of the movie kind of, you know, disagreeing with and and chasing after each other. But because Rogue, for all of his sinister, you know, modish tendencies, he's not nasty. And they don't ever get nasty with each other, right? Mm-hmm. They disagree, but it's all rooted in, like, love and care and concern, which is why yeah. kind of jumping, ju- jumping around the same way the movie jumps around. One of the most moving line readings in any movie that I – can think of is what is the way Christy, when she gets reintegrated back into the world of the film at the end, right before the big reveal, and she's suddenly chasing him, the way she screams out, darlings, you know, which is mm-hmm. such a sad line when you think about it, the plural of it and who she's referring to. But it's like she's never mad at her husband. She never stops loving him. And that's why their separation and what ends up happening within the, the world of the film is just so devastating and it's not a cold movie it has incredibly cold morbid stuff in it but it's a very warm film 
which is I think no one no one the, is like you know even even the little old creepy little old ladies which is a film that like you know the, the kind of characters another film would use yeah. an Italian filmmaker would use yeah. to a more you know kind of uh, cruel or grisly and there is something still sad about those characters that these characters are having these visions and reaching for each other and trying to help each other in, in, in a certain way. And at first, obviously John is a little bit resistant to that while he's, you know, setting up his little like creepy stone gargoyle on the church. And Laura is the one who's meeting, contacting them and trying to do these seances and, and, and everything that, that they're doing. And the actual bizarre seance scene even itself is, you know, like the elderly woman touching herself and screaming about how much danger John is in and that they need to leave Venice and I, I really like that that scene is crosscut with John, you know, drunkenly feeling paranoid and scared and concerned for Laura at the same time. Because, again, the second sight is kicking in. He's not sure exactly what's going wrong, but something's going wrong. And the only time you really see people, someone like kind of be cruel to someone else is John speaking to Laura. And when he is insisting that, you know, she is being crazy and that Christine is dead and he screams in her face, you know, she is dead. She's not giving us messages beyond the grave. I don't believe believe in any of this like supernatural hokum you know basically but and and you know and the way that christy performs that scene is what sticks with me about it which is where she goes like maybe i should get back on my medication or maybe i should you know like we 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 can find a kind of uh a rational out of this experience, despite the fact that she obviously believes what she's seen in that seance. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there, there's something about, you know, balancing that relationship, but also balancing this, obviously this, this huge traumatic scar that exists between the two of them at the same time. Yeah. Well, yeah. So no, go on, go on. I was just, it's what's interesting too, is like that happens. um, He's already seen the, the red coated, person in that one scene where they get lost in Venice in kind of the maze. And and, and what's interesting... Oh, too, yeah, you assume part of the frustration is his own confusion yeah. and anger that he's seeing these things and feeling these things too, right? Yeah, because once that happens, and it sets you off as an audience member too, where you're just like, well, something is up now. It, it can't just be exactly black and light, white what we've been told. Um, there's something else happening here. And he is the one that they specifically focus on to seeing it after he hears this kind of ominous scream and, and all of that. So him, him yelling at his wife and he repeats it too. He's like, she's dead, 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 dead. Like she, he's, it's almost like he's trying to convince himself in a way after seeing such a strange thing happen uh, while they were lost that night. And that's uh, also immediately after the sex. Cause I like what you said, Adam, where it was like, that could have been the, the ending of something where it's like, they've resolved the, 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 the grief in the relationship at least. And even though, you know, that grief will never really leave, they can, they can build from there. And then he sees that and it just, it's got to set off something else. He has to go down the rabbit hole, even if he denies it at first. Well, and, and, and Sutherland is very good at playing, the push pull of, you know, compulsion and denial. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's actually a very wiseacre kind of actor. And a lot of the stuff he had, it was in that seventies style of kind of, you know, sardonic rebellious, you know, hipster stuff. I mean, that's the way he is mm-hmm. in mash. That's even how he is in invasion of the body snatchers, you know, but I mean, here he's very good at conveying a lot of things that are interesting about this character. He's an intelligent character. He's worldly. He has a sense of history. He's very talented, but He's also like quite, you know, quite stubborn and an awful Mm -hmm. lot of denial. And that's why, you know, off the top, I sort of said, I love the movie because the movie is speaking to him. You know, he's at the center, he's at the center of the movie and he's just not listening to the film. 
which is why when the movie resolves itself, you know, we're kind of dancing around spoilers. I don't know if we want to come out and, and say it, except to say when Josh was mentioning. <laughs> yeah, we are a full spoiler show. I'm going to assume that most people have seen yeah. it, but yeah, feel free I mean, to jump around how you just, see fit. But just when we reach that moment of convergence and we realize not only that the red-coated figure isn't Christine, right? Mm-hmm. But the red-coated figure is also probably not anything supernatural. It's this bizarre, you know, androgynous serial killer whose reasons for doing whatever you know he or she is doing it, it had nothing to do with him right yeah. and 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 in the book if you guys have read it the last line which i think about all the time is like through his own blood john is like well that's a bloody silly way to die right <laughs> that's literally the last line and i that's think that's so in- insane yeah. and i think and i think that rogue manages somehow in the adaptation with the writers and the editor, he captures that exact awful moment of realization of like, oh, fuck, this is happening. This is the end. My life is flashing mm-hmm. before my eyes. And I think there is a bit of a kind of like mirthless humor to it. Like it is high irony, but he imbues it with such a sense of sadness. And that's Christy being just out of reach, being unable to stop it. And the the waste well, and, of- and that's obviously this also, you know, part of it is was it partially paranoid hallucination that he was experiencing? Yeah. But the way it's been tied up with genuinely meaningful symbols to him, you know, throughout yeah. the film is also something that drove him to that situation too, right? And yeah, uh I yeah, his 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 whole experience, especially when he gets to the end, but also that it's set up earlier in the film as well, where he narrowly avoids death. Donald Sutherland is in like a Final Destination movie for like <laughs> yeah. five minutes yeah, he of is, this for movie. Sure. <laughs> he, 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 he very he, much he, is. Or it's like the omen kind of thing, it feels like like it's yeah, the omen as well. Yeah. Him, yeah. And I think that yeah. I think, and I think that one of the things that accounts for its enduring power and the extent to which it has been quoted i mean never remade anyone who remakes this movie should be you know like shot Shot. but i think that when we're talking about the trickle down effect i mean like i'm i'm a huge fan obviously of ben wheatley's kill list which i think he says is a movie that he you know wanted to feel in the spirit of don't look now the highest compliment i can pay to kill list is this is beyond all the people whose reactions to that movie are stupid. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of is a spiritual remake of Don't Look Now. It has a lot to do with Don't Look Now in the editing and also in the way the movie is trying to tell you something the whole time about this family and this father and this son, right? Mm-hmm. But what, 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 what am I saying? I'm saying that any movie that can influence you, know, like a Bond movie and Ben Wheatley and even arguably Spielberg in Schindler's List with the little girl in the red coat, which when the movie came out, a lot of people were like, what an odd oblique don't look now reference, even though it means something totally different in that movie. I think Mm -hmm. part of its power is that it is a little bit less coherent than let's say, you know, the omen, you know, Mm -hmm. which is a movie that, that in some ways ties up its plot. It has certain narrative satisfactions to it. It is also dumb as shit. You know, like I really love (laughs) the omen. But I think that one of the things that don't look now. Well, has, you need to be a little incoherent to get to this kind of space to genuinely that's what, be that's destabilizing. What I, that's yeah. what I, that, that's what I mean. It's the openness in it, despite the rigorous tightness of the editing and the discipline of the motifs. I mean, I don't mean that the people who made the movie didn't know what they were doing. I mean that it's a 
perfectly open and shut, sutured, closed kind of exercise in, in symbolism and, and foresight. But talking about it the way that we are really does sort of point up the fact that its view of spirituality and life and death and cause and effect is pretty, um, what's the word? It's not totally consistent. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why I think the movie holds up in some ways. Because you can't yeah. just well, reduce but, but, but it there's, to there's tropes a, There's or a scariness applause. to ambiguity, right? There's two and and two a little bit the you know the the level of kind of waiting that he sometimes has to has to play in this too. I think actually one of for me the scariest moments is something that is incredibly familiar and you could even say generic, which is that you know this two by four is going to fall on you know Donald Sutherland's head. And you're just kind of like, and 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 to me, this speaks to what he's kind of doing throughout the entire movie. The the fact that you have to, you don't get the sound for it. You just get like an insert shot of it falling completely silently. No one else picking up on what's happening. Yeah. And he lets that shot hang in your mind for like 10 or 15 seconds before you actually get the effect of it crashing through, you know, the sort of like rickety, you know, uh, platform that he is on working on the mosaic in, in, in the church and it comes crashing through. And then it's a repeat of the slow motion, just insanity of that opening sequence briefly as Donald Sutherland really performing this insanely dangerous stunt is just kind of left hanging there and his reaction to it too is unbelievable where he's just like you know my wife warned me that i was in danger this is kind of prophetic <laughs> yeah. when you think about it he's he's begging this serial killer to pop out behind the screen and stab him at that point you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well, I love, there's a, a couple other um really great moments like that where it just feels like there's a you know, it's it's destiny or fate that's following them, and it's their grief at the same time. Like there's when the uh, wife faints, um, and uh, she goes to the hospital briefly, and she wakes up and she sees like a bunch of kids playing in the oh, uh, yeah. the other room, and even her knocking all the glasses over and all the yeah. liquids mm-hmm. flying everywhere. And, yep. Yeah, and then one of the kids is actually just throwing a ball up and down. That's the exact same ball that Christine was playing in uh, in the backyard, and it's just like this this white and red ball that constantly pops up every once in a while. And it's like, it's just it, it, that grief is constantly following them. Like it's a spirit or something like that. And it even just, it comes up physically through these different symbols, usually connected to like a, a child's toy, like another one, he finds a, a naked doll uh, just floating yeah. in the river. Um, things like that. So yeah, it's- that, that's what I mean. Like these, these actual meaningful symbols to them kind of drove them to do these things. And mm-hmm. the kind of genius of the movie is it, it totally confuses you with them as to whether, yeah, is this something that's coming from paranoia? Is this actually supernatural? Is this, is that the sort of state of mind you exist in when something like this happens to you? Mm-hmm. Like, is it all three of these at the same time? Like you are really left in that kind of ambiguous space between those things while you're watching something that again, it's like there is kind of like a matter of fact nature to what happens in this movie. There is a serial killer around Venice and there is a couple falling apart because of, you know, a traumatic experience. And it is odd how straightforward converging while still being disorienting. But in this way that I don't find at all confusing or frustrating, it is it's it's a masterpiece in especially like editing for me. Like, I just think it's some of the best editing I have ever seen in my entire life. Well, that's what I mean as an adaptation is that it it completely reconfigures and transcends its source material without throwing it out or disrespecting it mm-hmm. you know and i think that it's very it's a, it's a very medium specific uh you know kind of effect that he's going for and that was his intention i mean this is a, a director who's sort of trying to 
experiment. I mean, I'm thinking right now and writing something currently about what William Friedkin did the same year in The Exorcist, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also mm-hmm. cinematic language and, you know, absolute state of the art, you know, yoking special effects to kind of primal fears. But I mean, everything in The Exorcist is calculated to, you know, make an audience feel something collectively. There's no space for any of them. And mm-hmm. I think of a movie like Don't Look Now, and I think of all just the interior spaces of the audience in a theater watching that movie and how it's playing to each person. They're all kind of watching the same movie, but there's enough space in that they might all be kind of jigsawing it together in their head in a different way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's such an interesting contrast to something like The Exorcist, which also has powerful iconography. I mean, those two movies, if you put them together, their DNA is in like half the A24 elevated <laughs> horror stuff but i mean one of them is just like this audience pounding machine that kind of works and the other is this again sort of just strange thought experiment where where plot is is really yeah subordinate to to to, to symbolism and uh well no one else would film the murder uh like a serial killing you know presumably a black gloved killer around venice and no one else would choose to frame that as donald sutherland you know as a just an aside one character going hey they're pulling a body out of the venice canal do you want to go like take a look at it real quick and what a horrible image to watch them like pulling this rotting corpse out you know of the water and just like gracelessly shoving it into a boat and obviously he's associating this image with his own you know his relationship with water and death as well and it's just it's one of those things where like it's a total side like this would be the you know we would actually watch an entire sequence of this woman getting killed in a in an argento film and in mm-hmm. this film it is just like a total aside in what it means to this guy yeah yeah and and then the connective tissue too is you do have a score by uh pino Donaggio, right Who, incredible you know, his first insane. score too right before de palma stole him and was like you're gonna do carrie you're gonna do <laughs> blow out you're gonna do yeah. body double you know he, he watched this movie he was like can you do that for me every time <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I want a little tiny piano melody a little spare piano melody you know <laughs> yeah and that incredible and the incredible you know funereal flourishes towards the end too that the yep. that the yep. that the that the music does so yeah i mean just all the all, all, all the craft of it is amazing, and it and it really does have its place in film history. I mean, uh, it is the sort of thing everyone does get around to seeing, you know. And mm-hmm. then I, I, yeah. I like to think it then lives up to the reputation. Like people might be a little confused or flummoxed or perplexed by it, but hopefully, people, if you're discovering the movie because we're talking about it and you watch it, I, I don't think people will be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the the only other thing I I wanted to hit on just before we we uh, wrapped up, and Adam already kind of did a good job of kind of getting us partially there, but I did want to actually talk about the section where after Donald Sutherland does his whole, uh, you know, the the strings are getting a little bit floodier and more anxious. He's running around Venice, you know, he is reporting his wife missing. There's this whole kind of like, you know, kind of like old school ghost story thing happening where he thinks that he's seen his wife around yeah. town, but he knows that she's already traveled to England to go and take care of their son who's had some sort of accident. And, uh, and he decides she's to go on a file a, a boat, po- I believe. 
which is just uh, yes. really turns into a very scary thing by the end. <laughs> yeah, with, with with the little old ladies uh, mm-hmm. as, as well. Mm-hmm. And so he's, you know, he's immediately assumed that there's something tangible happening here. Immediately goes to the Italian police who are about as useful as they are in every Italian horror <laughs> film and are just like, is this guy a killer? Yeah, I think this guy might be our killer. You know, yeah. and he's giving them the sketch of this like monstrous little, you know, what he what, what he thinks is like this the old lady, but is actually, you know, ends up kind of being what, what looks like the kind of like the dwarfish killer of some kind that we'll talk about maybe briefly. Um, but ultimately uh, all of this section is, is the section where it does kind of pay a little bit more attention to genre fealty as it is going through. And he's having to deal with, you know, the, the fact that the police aren't really believing him, his paranoid visions are maybe getting a little bit stronger. And I'll obviously too, that the, the old women are, uh, who he gets arrested and then has to go and actually get uh, like basically like bail her out, <laughs> which is yeah. very funny. He's like, I'll, I will escort you back, blind woman. I'm sorry that I <laughs> said that you were, you know, trying to like kidnap and abduct my wife. I do love too that the story is that the police officer <laughs> has to deal with this. Like, so you're telling me your wife went to England and isn't here. And is by all accounts a much happier woman right now <laughs> due to, you know, be due to these old ladies. But you're saying that she has been kidnapped by them and, you know, is going to be harmed by them. And, you know, it's, it, it is a very funny thing where even Donald Sutherland has to kind of think about it for a second. Yeah, that is the story I'm going with, as surreal as it sounds. Um, but the the last set piece of this, when it does finally converge and it does finally go back to the express images and the express editing patterns that we were dealing with in, in that finale, is such an incredible sequence when you know you you get the old lady sort of like collapsing onto the bed being like you know please fetch him please bring him back you know he needs to hear this that something is going going wrong with him he's obviously being once again led by the mysterious girl in 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 the red coat and you know all of this is being kind of cohered together for us find him warn him you know do all of this and uh he chases her into a series of alleys and and tunnels and is and you know into this very deserted sort of like crumbling almost like underground palace looking area Mm -hmm. and man when that little girl just turns around and it is just a little tiny instead like a you know his daughter sized you know androgynous you know monster of some kind essentially which i mean maybe people might find troubling uh the the, the, the imagery of i'm not sure um and but the fact that she just like meat cleavers him in the neck is the thing that i was watching this with someone who was watching it for the first time and i've never failed to see this moment like it's it's just it's shocking in the old school 70s genre way and it's one of the few gestures where it kind of breaks the art movieism a bit while not at all, like functionally, it's still doing right, everything that it's been teaching you to watch the whole time. <laughs> yeah, but I just find this gesture so interesting, and I it it, it kind of does feel like it comes out of not necessarily nowhere, but I don't know. It feels like it still breaks the fabric of the film a little bit to have well, like a Texas chainsaw cleaver going into Donald well, Sutherland's neck. Well, well, that's well, that's what I mean by he somehow aces the assignment of the final line. A bloody silly way yeah. to die. Emphasis on blood. I mean. It's, yeah. it, it, it does seem to belong in a less, let's say, a less pretentious <laughs> movie or a mm-hmm. less ostentatious yeah. movie. But it's also where the movie has been heading all along. And it's a pretense for the, for the flashback, which has nothing to do with whoever this killer is. Yeah. Which is, I find the pointlessness of the killer 
is both very funny and very upsetting because in the end it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, this yeah. is the end for 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 him. That's not the movie we're watching. We're not watching the movie where we find out who this killer is or whether she's going to be apprehended, you know, moments after this 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 killing or whatever. It's about the fact that he didn't listen. Yeah. And about the yeah, fact even, that his life is over. It's even painted like like this um this killer is kind of a a spirit like it never it, it it never talks. It doesn't have any moment of of like um, this is this is what I am. This is why I've been doing no. that, which would be obviously terrible. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, but it, it, that's the, it, it. Feels like you really get no answer just from that blunt killing. It's just he went too far. He he followed his grief too far. He couldn't let go. Um, yeah. And uh, that that is truly terrifying. It's it's really just there's there is no answer. He just he 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 answers the door and there's death right there on the porch. Well, yeah. Know? Well, and the thing that I like that is how well Rogue's sort of style and editing pattern. It's it's one that like directly confronts the contradiction of you know there is kind of this animalistic instinct inside of all of us to kind of chase ghosts and mm-hmm. solve mystery mysterious puzzles and his movies. Well, we want it too as like an audience to, member to, to you're do like, that. You're like, please that, figure yeah, out what the hell is going on. Clearly, that can't be his daughter, or maybe we're watching a ghost. Whatever it is, you are eager to know who, what what red-coated thing he's well, and, chasing. And, and you're you know? taught by Hitchcock movies and by Giallo movies that, you know, there's a guy at the end that we are going right. to unmask in some some sort of quality. And there's going to be and a reason for that unmasking too. It's not just going to be death because, you know, you, yeah. you haven't been able to, to let it go. But that's why I think what he's done here is so incredible because it's like, how do you maintain that contradiction despite obviously the opening scene grounding us in this past history, clearly informing us where all of our paths end, you know? Well, well, <laughs> well, and isn't it amazing as we're so conditioned to almost flashbacks at the end being cheesy or being handholding and what's being flashed back to at the end is not narrative information. Yep. It's visual information, mm-hmm. audio visual information. So it's not like he's getting killed. And he's like putting the pieces together of who the killer is. What he's yep. putting the pieces together of is the movie we just watched. And that yep. this was always going to be the final tile in the mosaic, which is why I actually find the coda of the film, the aftermath, hugely calm. Mm-hmm. It's sad. But Julie Christie there on the funeral boat with the sisters, which he's already seen, so we've already seen it. It's not a shock. We have that feeling of deja vu because that's how the movie's made. Mm-hmm. And she <laughs> seems not, she's sad. But I still feel more like she's at peace about Christine, and that's what that image is about. Yeah, it's almost as if John is collateral damage and the huger trauma of the loss of the daughter. And I don't find the end. The very end isn't scary. The very end is quite um, dignified. Yeah, and like and, and and weirdly kind of calm, which is fascinating. But because the enigma of the movie has been resolved, you've kind of seen it all already, and then the boat can just kind of, you know, drift off into oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's like an a, interesting comfort with the uh, paradox being, you know, uh, in, in, in full view now. Yeah. I think there's still, there's obviously just a terrifying thought because I think death for us is inherently terrifying. But I do get, I, like, I totally get what you're saying where there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of calmness in, in Julie's performance because she has, you know, tears are running down her face, but she doesn't have this, 
She's not, you know, she's not gasping for air or anything no, like that kind of no. crying. She's she's really accepting of what has no, happened. No, it's, it's not notes of hysteria, which you right. could see someone going for, especially, too, because, the you know, anyone would react hysterically to what Donald Sutherland witnesses and experiences in that final scene. <laughs> Absolutely. <of> that, <laughs> but that's also why I isolated that line delivery she has when she yells, darlings. She's mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. of both of them. One, she's mm-hmm. already lost. I think one, she thinks that she's about to lose. She thinks of them kind of together. Of course, in reality, only one of the two people on the other side of that gate is a darling to her. You know, the other is, as we've said, you know, weirdo, jello, dwarf lady. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, it's like grief on top of grief. But I do believe the loss of Christine is the thing that has to be healed throughout the movie. And John dying is unfortunate. It's kind of his own fault. It doesn't make it worse for her. It's it's it, it, she needs to come be at peace with losing her child, mm-hmm. and I feel like the movie grants that to her. There's a little grace to it at the end. Yeah, I well, think and and she's the one who's open to listening to the world around her a little exactly. bit in comparison to him, right? So it, 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 exactly, even if listening to the world means you know you just get to attend another funeral, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. She does. I, I like what you said, where she's not tearful, she's not hysterical. There's a certain resignation to it and a certain dignity in that. As well, I've always found the, the the ending comforting for some reason, even though it comes in the aftermath of something so startling. It does. Well, it, it feels genuinely like it has come to terms with the yeah. random, chaotic, inexplicable nature of experiencing death. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like that's what the movie has come to terms with, even though it's done it in this very surreal, impressionistic, you know, like psychological horror experience in order to get you to that position. But it's, you know, it's a it's a wonderful contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> And I do with, think it's with, really interesting to have him have his character be. It, pre, it seems pretty defined that he has these these premonitions and he has kind of this this psychic uh, ability like the the older blind woman. But his lack of really accepting it or even trying to understand it is what leads him to his death. And I think that that's a like it's terrifying and fascinating too. Um, I'm not exactly sure if it's maybe it's like his grief is almost blocking him from really seeing what is happening in front of his very eyes. Um, Cause you know, like we said, there's warning after warning after warning. And I like that there's one character that has seemed to embrace, I guess their power over the years and, and kind of become one with it. Whereas Donald seems completely, I don't, he almost seems blinded to it. It's not even like he's fighting against it. It's just like, he can't really even comprehend what he's seeing and going through. Well, and, and maybe as a bridge to the next movie, I will say that when I wrote about this movie for Sight and Sound, in, when I wrote why I didn't just put it on my 10 best list, but built my whole 10 best list around it. I was like, what are movies that compliment Don't Look Now? Like, I think it's because I'm just thinking of my life. I have a lot of fulfilling things in my life, including kids. I don't, I'm not thinking of that, not at all. But the idea that I've just spent so much of my life watching movies, I wonder how much of what flashes before my eyes late in my life is going to be my life or is going to be movies or is going to be somewhere <laughs> in between there. And You're truly, just going to see Don't, don't Look Now as well, murder scene as, as you pass. All the red coats throughout no, cinema history. No, no, but I mean, to, but, but to be honest, if you think about movies as these way stations of time that you experience, I mean, that's the idea mm-hmm. of experiencing other lives and other visions is, you know, so much of what we sit and watch isn't our own life. It's movies that then become integrated into those. I mean, if you're a movie watcher. You're going to terrify me. You're going to give me an existential crisis. You know, 
is interpreting symbols but and, I, you know. Well, but, well, but, well, but what, what I mean is that Don't Look Now has sort of taught us all this already that not that, you know, the, the, the occult exists and there's a dwarf waiting to kill all of us, <laughs> but that but that it's all kind of a bloody silly way. That would way be a to, silly way to go, though. But, 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 it is, but it's all kind of a silly way to go and it's all <laughs> lurking somewhere. And I feel like Don't Look Now deals with that in a way that's both skin crawling and upsetting and also like in its own way, it's like quite fair It's enough. inevitable and you accept and it in a way. You, you, you kind of accept it in a way and it does that through that idea of like, you know, all the stuff that we're watching and that we watch, all the movies, the cinematic experiences, viewing experiences that we have are, are going to go into that, you know, going to go into that matrix. They come in one end and come out the other. So, I mean, Don't Look Now is a movie that I don't just feel like I've watched a lot of times. I feel like it has enough space, psychic space rented in my head that I'm going to think about it late in my life as well. And you know what? I like that. It doesn't bother me. You know, <laughs> it, 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 I, I'm hey, just, you're I'm, Julie Christie on the boat. There's some comfort. I'm Julie Christie right? on the boat. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, res I'm resigned to it and I'm grateful for it. And I think the fact that can, it, it can exist for me in this space between. You're, you're, you're not raging and screaming like 1973, the wicker man. No, you know, against Ab it, you know? Ab Ab absolute <laughs> terror in this movie and absolute reassurance. Mm -hmm. So there you go. No, yeah, I love it. I, right. lo I, I love it very much. Yeah. That'll definitely be a good spot to uh, wrap it up. If we are entering a uh, reductive rating round for this one, which, uh, you know, remove all the words, all the nuance number between one and five. I think this one's obviously uh, for, for Adam, but, uh, but uh, this one is, was, was the, uh, the upgrade from the uh, Jamie four to the five for me. Nice. Uh, this was my uh, second time go through and getting to watch um, uh, my girlfriend actually experience it for the first time while I was kind of going through it, very familiar with it. it I don't know. I, I had the, exact experience that Adam just described where I originally was very kind of unsettled and kind of perplexed, especially by, you know, the use of this very familiar grammar with this very kind of jagged and kind of radical um, form at, at, at times creating this kind of shattering labyrinth. And there was something very different about going uh, at it for the second time where it did feel like the you know where the, the the point of the movie is that it's ancient architecture kind of distorted by a more kind of like modernist reflection and i felt a strange kind of comfort and secular quality to it where i was just like you know what there's there's anguish and there's you know there is grief to this film and there is but there there is something about the way that it triggers that part of your brain that's interested in puzzles and is curious and that you can't you know look away from unfortunately um and the way that it uses recurring images the way that it uses rhyming editing patterns and i don't know there there was something strangely yearning on this watch that i feel like on my last watch i was more prepared for just the bleak genre nature of the film which it does deliver mm -hmm. on if that's what you wanted of the film as well but there is something very you know hidden inside the ambiguity and the hostility of the film, there is a kind of, um, you know, there, there is something that it forms in, in the collapse that it's, it isn't just this anguished howl of, uh, you know, of, of Donald Sutherland screaming and holding the child in, in the mud. And, uh, it, even if it builds to a similar sequence there, I don't know, there, there was something, you know, uh, un unsettling and, and enigmatic, but also strangely, I don't know, uh, 
accepting and comforting by the very end of the film, which is just a, which was a weird experience. I will say, yeah. like, I, you know, I, I was like, I don't know. There's something satisfying about it, I guess, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, maybe that's due to the mechanical nature of how it's been constructed. I know it's something that some people don't like about the movie. I think Adam, you cited Kale's review, but she, I think she, she called it like chillingly chic, at one point as well, which I could understand someone coming to in terms of how it, addresses its predestination well, it and its she, foreshadowing, but... She also did that great thing where she's like, no one can get any pleasure from this, and it's like, <laughs> oh, Paul, oh, oh, Pauline, speak, speak, speak for yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, 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 the constant writing in the second person saying, this is how you feel. No, it's not how I feel, it's how you feel. Mm-hmm. And her, her, I think her line was, she said, it's an entertainment for bomb victims, like, no one can take pleasure from it. And you're like, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're getting at something about it that it might, yeah, might be a little bit bleak and yeah, there might be something chic about that as well. But I mean, imposing this pleasure principle or lack thereof was sort of a big problem that she had. She really had an issue, I think, with anything that people claim to get, you know, mm. if there was something to get, Pauline Kale liked to say, you didn't get it or you shouldn't get it, or I got it already and it's nothing special. And, and rogue and, and rogue, I think But that's, that's so interesting because this is a film that I feel like there is nothing. Ultimately, I feel like it, everything there is to get about it is all there. If you were to, it's all tech, it is, it is literal in a way, if you were to just watch this movie that way. But I find that there's something in the way that it makes you feel in the way that it's been constructed. That makes it so different than anything else I've seen, which is why, yeah, for me, it, it landed in the five territory on this watch yeah yeah like there is an acceptance with 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 julie's character and all of that but like yeah but everything that there was an acceptance on my part is what i will say i was like donald sutherland's going down yeah 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 he's he's digging his own grave yeah death is coming for us all (laughs) absolutely um yeah i'm I'm, I'm okay with that right now uh this is i think my second time watching it as well um i am going to give it the old the jamie four like the strongest one i could possibly give really i don't have after this conversation especially i really don't have a lot to even say that i dislike about it um i will say that i i kind of agree that in there's that 10 to 15 minutes that's a little bit slow in the in the third act but i also think that once i eventually get around to rewatching this that that kind of pulls you back for the finale which is just kind of wild and so i think you know having those slow moments and then such a such a shocking finale that it leads to it it ends up kind of working i just want to i want to feel it so um this is fantastic this is some of the best editing truly i've ever seen in my entire life i i love all of the inner cutting um and the kind of uh, surreal imagery built in with kind of the more grounded stuff the way that he uses uh, Venice is unbelievable. It's just like this this maze and, um, you know, having it surrounded by water just works so well with all of the other imagery that they're building into that with the drowning of Christine and the uh, the, the the body that they find and, and everything else. It's I mean, it's truly it's one of the most well thought out uh, uh, movies I've I've seen. And, and it is interesting that it takes on this kind of uh, it, it, this this fluid way of of telling the narrative but it's still very straightforward i haven't seen something like that uh that i can that i can really recall right now um it's 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 a it's it's very masterfully done it really is so i i can't wait to to go back to it but yeah for now can can i I give it my rating i rate it beyond the fret the fret it is beyond the fragile geometry of space 
I'm not rating it out of stars. I'm, 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 ra- I'm rating it out of the geometry of space that is beyond geometry of, of space. Let, let's say five, past five, five, five stars. Sweet. That's awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, that'll, I think, wrap it up for Don't Look Now. We're going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about The Vanishing. Stick around. No, je ne veux No. Oui? Et, uh, je, je veux, uh, uh, um... Um... Vous avez violé Saskia. Si elle est morte, je vais mourir moi aussi. Et si l'homme qui voulait savoir, c'était vous all right, we are back and we are talking The Vanishing, a.k.a. Spurlus, uh, which I believe translates to Traceless. Uh, this is the 1988 uh, Dutch uh, abduction serial killer horror thriller film written and directed by George Sluizer, adapted from the 1984 novella called The Golden Egg by a uh, Tim Crab or Crabbe, and starring uh, Bernard Pierre Donadieu, uh, Jean Borvotes, and Johanna uh, Ter Stige. Uh, this is our first time talking about George uh, Sluizer, this uh, Parisian-born Dutch-Jewish filmmaker who is most well-known from what I could gather for this film, uh, as well as its American remake, which Jamie and I haven't seen, but I believe Adam has seen, and we might need to end up talking about at, at, at some point. But Adam, do you know anything else about Sluizer? All else I could find was that he didn't start directing until he was 40, and he directed his first film when he was, or, and he directed this film when he was like 60 years old, which wow. seems like a weird career trajectory based on the <laughs> brief information there is about him on the internet. Yeah, it's an extremely odd career trajectory. The fam- Famously, or semi-famously, he was supposed to, after this, because this movie did extremely well, right? got him a shot in Hollywood. Yeah, it, it came out stateside like 1991 or something yeah, like that and did, got tons of acclaim. And yeah, and he and he had cast River Phoenix in a film called I think Dark That's right Dark too. Dark Blood, which mm-hmm. was his follow up to um, both of the. And did River die and, before they started shooting? I or think they, is that I, what happened? No, they had already started shooting. I believe. Uh, bef- just before the end of the project, it remained unfinished. It actually showed in 2012, like an unfinished version of it, which I've always wanted to see. I don't know if it exists on the internet or if in the years since 2012, just like other stuff has come up. So it's not such a fascinating mystery anymore. But like it showed at the Berlin Film Festival and was supposedly kind of okay. So mm. that's mm. a, it's a, it's a sort of like weird, um, a weird kind of footnote, but he also is in that category of, you know, like directors with the one great movie, but it's pretty great. And yeah. almost, <laughs> and almost seems great in a way beyond him too, which I'm not, doesn't mean that it's a fluke, but like whatever he was on, like he was on one, you know, and the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the yeah. movie, the movie, the movie is more than even the sum of those, of those parts. Yeah. Yeah, why well, I know part of this was inspired by uh that he he met this this writer Tim Crabbe who is this Dutch 
journalist um, who he kind of be b- befriended well enough to get access to things that he was working on, uh, including a- an early manuscript of what would become the golden egg and which would become this film. So he was kind of like trying to write yeah. this script like before the novel was even finished and they were kind of co-writing the scripts together a little bit, although it sounds like they had a little bit of a falling out and the final draft ended up being, you know, Sweezer kind of taking control and making some of the decisions that he wanted to make. Um, but, uh, for anyone who is maybe unfamiliar with, with the vanishing, this is actually kind of an incredibly simple movie. Um, in, in, in a way it is about a vacationing couple named Rex and, uh, Saskia who are a Dutch couple vacationing in France and the very, you know, sort of idyllic sort of sunny side countryside. And they are kind of enjoying, uh, this road trip together. And there are, you know, we'll, we'll get into a couple specific sequences, like some of the, like the, like the tunnel sequence and the actual disappearance and gas station sequence itself. Mm-hmm. But essentially she disappears completely with without a trace in a very um, in a very unsatisfying way for both Rex and for anyone who is interested in, you know, a, a, a mystery crime genre film. And it triggers a kind of obsession uh, in the character of Rex, who tries to approach this from like kind of a detective movie perspective. But the movie is actually broken into not just the perspective of Rex, but also the perspective of this guy named Raymond, uh, played by Bernard Pierre Donadieu, who is the guy who is the actual abductor and presumed killer. And we kind of split the difference between the two of them and go back and forth between the two of them and more of this kind of like philosophical existential you know uh we we discuss things like predestination and convergences and don't look now Mm -hmm. and there's a very sort of similarly sort of like haunted memory structure to this film that splinters the two psychology of two different kinds of obsessed men in a way becomes the subject the subject of what otherwise again is something that you might be familiar with a mysterious missing woman you know talking about Hitchcock like we did in Don't Look Now. It's, it's, it's a movie that kind of approaches that idea in a very different way that I, you know, haven't quite seen too many people repeat except for, I don't know, speaking of Adam's book, maybe David Fincher, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> Zodiac and Gone Girl are movies that are very much on the brain when you watch this for anyone who are a fan of those. Well, one way to look at the movie, and I, I, I think it's a fun way to look at it, is you got two guys here, right? Two, two, two protagonists, two point of view. I mean, eventually they're going to intertwine and, and meet. You know, that's the structure of the movie. It's one kind is, of heat in a way, if you think kind, about he, it. He, yeah. one, one is a character who, for the entire film, knows something that we don't, Right. The entire film, yeah. he knows something that we don't, and we share in what tantalizingly he knows. so tantalizingly so, <laughs> and we share in what he knows right up to a point, and then we're only denied it not because you know not not, not because he's withholding it. I mean, at the end of the movie, he's quite happy to spill his guts, but because of the way the movie is edited, we 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 lose our complicity with him for some key period of time. Then the other character is a character who knows nothing, right? And this other character yeah. is defined by his lack of knowledge because the time that we've spent with him is also time where we also know nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't want to spend more time with the first guy because he is obviously a sociopath. And yet we do not want to lose track of the first guy because fucking like he knows what happened. Yeah. He has what we want. <laughs> he has what we want. And yeah. the second character has no, this is very important to me, he has no attractive 
redeeming or identifiable qualities beyond cluelessness. The mm-hmm. only reason we give a shit about this character is because he doesn't know what happened to his girlfriend. And, yeah. and at a certain point, as for him as it is with us, it's not even about her. Joanna Terstige is super vivid and cute and attractive. She's a fascinating character. She gives um, you know, this character, Saskia, these interesting shadings of being like weirdly like clingy and demanding and you know, like the little like trick he pl- that Rex plays on her at the beginning when he does leave her stranded in the tunnel after their car breaks down to go get gas. Like the way she reacts after that, you kind of wonder for a while, like she might have just bailed to teach him a lesson. Like I'm not saying the characters in the movie aren't mm-hmm. interesting, but he is just a device by which you're like, what happened? And I love the way that the movie is narrated. We don't want to spend time with Raymond. He's creepy as shit. And it's yep. very obvious <laughs> That he's doing some stuff that he is like systematically, meticulously withholding from his family, but we see it. He's like digging holes and wondering if anyone can hear screams. You know, yeah. he's like te- he's like moment. testing yeah. testing anesthetics to see how long they're gonna last. He's rehearsing, you know, these these routines that certainly seem to interlace with what we see at the car park where Saskia disappears but we don't want him to go away because then there's no movie and rex Mm -hmm. we don't even like this guy but he needs to know and so you have these two characters who serve these separate but complementary functions and then the movie is just like a vise that closes around the, the 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 relate the dynamic between those two characters and you cannot not be fascinated it's impossible yeah, and I, I also love all the the building of context as you get to know the the um, the kidnapper or killer or whatever you'd like to call him in that sense. Uh, because when we're introduced, like just talking about the the gas station sequence when she's actually taken, like there's so much. Really, all we see is a man with a cast, and he's and he's reading a newspaper, and then they kind of go about their uh, you know romantic relationship a little bit. They dig the the. Well, he kind of blends into the ordinary environment, yeah. right? Right, and, and, and there's and this, like, there, there, there's attention paid to him, but we don't know exactly why. It's the same attention it pays to like a kid throwing a frisbee in the background, right. or you know, he's part and, of the ambiance a little bit. <laughs> and there's this thought, like after she's gone, especially that that whatever happened. Um, that that this person was probably incredibly skilled at it. The, the, you start to build this case that this must be some crazy kidnapper killer uh, that has these these this incredible skill to do so. And then as you get to know him, you see him actually build up to that moment, and you see him fail, and you see him humiliate himself doing it, as calculated as he is. Um, it's 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 really interesting to take that different perspective of him as you just get more information about this horrible human being because yeah. just that mystery at first it, it does cause you to think that he's like this almost larger than life character that's that's playing the strings of everybody you know what I mean well similarly I think to don't look now it's part of the associative editing and structure of the film a little bit mm-hmm. that you kind totally. of go like it, it 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 is genius in a way to open this film on on a, a similar sort of like you know, kind of like existential sequence, which is a series of like logistical problems that arise, but take on a little bit more of a dreamlike 
quality um, when they are, you know, you know, just driving through the French countryside and they end up in this tunnel. And she's talking about these unbearably lonely dreams of, you know, being trapped in this golden egg and floating through space forever. And, you know, there and and that's one version of the dream. And the other variation is if she maybe crashes into another egg and maybe the relief and it's over because she's, Mm -hmm. you know, she's no longer floating alone anymore. But the sequence is sort of compounded by they run out of gas in this very dark tunnel and it triggers a fight between, you know, partially whose fault it was, where they're going to get a flashlight from. Definitely and, Rex's you know, fault, by the way. <laughs> and it, well, like, he, she did warn him about the gas, you know, and he's like, you're running out of gas, man. You should, and maybe you should have had some in, 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 in the actual and gas. And he is presents it tank. as like having this, this weird pride about it. Like he just doesn't want to exactly well, do it. I, I, I love that it's this impulsive macho-ness to yeah, him where he's basically totally. like, he's going to go walk through the tunnel without the flashlight. <laughs> because the scared woman can't leave the car without the flashlight. And he, when he emerges from that darkness smirking yeah. and he's like listening to her screams, there's something perverse about that. And it really does introduce you to something vindictive and something, you know, creepy about the imagery of abandoning a woman in a tunnel. It is, yeah. it is, it is absolutely crucial that Rex is kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the same way that Raymond, while self-describing accurately, as a sociopath, and this is where maybe you guys' views differ or it's fascinating to really talk about, in some ways, he is a more functional and generous. I mean, don't, don't, don't worry. You don't have to like, don't, 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 just, 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 stop, just, just, no, stop right there. Just leave it right there. Hang it, leave it in the air. He is, he's a more he functional is, and generous man. He, he's this functional kind of family man who you do not get a sense that there is any other context in which he would ever do anybody harm except for yeah. this one situation that he has willed himself into doing mm-hmm. kind of, and this is why I find the film terrifying and we'll get to it. And this idea of an evil movie and this Twitter prompt I did when I was doing a lecture on the vanishing that took on a life of its own. It's like <laughs> he's, he's monstrous because of what we see him doing, but it's not something as banal as the banality of evil. It's kind of like, here's a normal person who has just this one tiny little thing that's broken. It just broke at some point. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to break his entire life and it's not going to turn him into, you know, Charlie Starkweather driving up and down the highway shooting people. He's just going to do this one thing because it seems really important to him that he do it. And because it's like this bet he has with the universe that like nothing can stop him. So he's broken, yeah. but it's this one tiny little valve that kind of popped and isn't going to get replaced. And you juxtapose that with Rex, who's, you know, just like kind of a rude dick. And it's fascinating to me, the tension between those two actors, because by the time they do come together, by the time the timelines add up and the movies bring them together, you know, Rex is nominally the hero and Raymond's the villain. And I don't mean there's a reading of the movie where those things reverse, but it's like they're each in their way kind of unpleasant. Mm -hmm. I I think that that's part of what makes the movie so fun for me and fascinating for me is as a viewer, you're like, yeah, but I want to know more about Raymond. Tell me more. About this guy, <laughs> even though I also well, don't yeah, want to spend time with And when they do meet, him. obviously he's kind of perversely friendly to him in a way. And, yeah. and also to, to, to Rex's perspective, this guy is like the constructor of this situation that he has experienced in a way. He's the person who has the the all-seeing power to, you know, com- complete this puzzle that, that, that he can't. But I like that we do experience with Rex completely that just sudden and, you know, you know, loss that he, that, that he does. And and the movie similarly does instruct you how it's going to, 
you know, accumulate details in this very kind of, you know, ordinary sense of building its suspense. It's not overcranked. It's not melodramatic. It just, you know, the camera moves just enough to show you certain elements in, of, in the busyness of the gas station where yeah. him and Saskia, after they get gas, finally get up to where they romantically sit by a tree and put their coins down and pledge that, you know, he's never going to abandon her again because it was such a, you know, like a, like a horrible thing and humiliating thing to, to, to kind of do. And then she goes into the gas station for drinks. And I love the way we just sit with him listening to the sounds of people playing, taking the Polaroid, listening to the truck go by. And when he eventually goes looking for her, he actually waits a couple minutes because he's like, you know, she's taking the appropriate amount of time to go get drinks. And she's like, oh, now she's taking a little bit too long. And then he's casually investigating it, being like, oh, did she go get a coffee? Did she go to the washroom? What did she do this? And then it slowly becomes more frantic. But this is over like a practically like five to 10 minute long sequence of us just sitting in once there was this beautiful, glowing, fully real person right in front of you and then the next moment it was just gone and you will never know exactly why you will you know and like that's and ultimately that's what he's raging against when we eventually do get into the obsessive side of the film right and i just think it's genius to put us into that exact it's these are two movies that get you to identify with that but you know harrowing experience up front so that it contextualizes everything else you know but you know and that's the hitchcockian mechanism that's the lady vanishes right i mean that's the you know but as it goes on and again it's made with such clarity and maybe it has to be kind of made by like semi-miserable people or people who are not particularly you know kind in order to make it everything you just said is so true this beautiful luminous person is gone but as the years go on it's not about her Yep. He thinks it's about her, and the, you have the incredible iconic image of her missing photo, right, which is also one of the posters of the movie, and you do kind of fall in love with her a little bit, with with caveats, because she's also kind of annoying, you know, very realistic relationship. But by the end, it's not about her, and he even says as much. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. says, Rex says at one point, he says, you know, if I could choose between, you know, knowing that she was dead and a possibility where she's alive, happy somewhere else, but I'm not going to know the answer, I'd kill her. Right. Yeah. Because it's about his and and by the end, it's not even about his loss. I think it's about his emasculation in the face mm. of this other man, which is why he can't even function with his new girlfriend. It's not just that he's pining for his lost lover. It's that he has no potency as a man. He doesn't know what happened. And Raymond, who's a complete nebbish, even though he's kind of big and hulking, he ends up having this huge potency over him. And it really becomes this like battle of wills towards the end. But we know that Rex is going to lose because he's got nothing on the other guy. And the dread of that is so tied also to convergence. It's like the best thrillers are like this. Like seven is the same way where you're sort of like Mm -hmm. the more horrible, you know, the revelation is going to be the more you want to see it because that is going to make the movie complete. And boy, Mm -hmm. does the vanishing pay that off. Like, I think better than the movie I've ever seen. But see, that's why I think that that opening that really does lend you into, ground you into the confusion and the anguish and him sobbing in his car and the, you know, how this sunny, ordinary day became a more desperate and more scary day. Because, like, that's an immediately identifiable 
situation to put someone in. And then I think the details that make him, you know, more unsympathetic are what start to build up in the three years later section when we do pick up with Raymond's perspective. Although I guess it kind of flashes a little bit back and forth. We get Raymond's perspective at first uh, building up to the uh, crime that he's he, he's about to commit where we witness the machinations before the actual sort of occurrence uh, or the kind of like fate it, it itself, which it obviously uh, like don't look now. It saves for the very harrowing ending. Um, <laughs> yeah. But who in 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 this case, it's very procedurally minded planning and orchestration of his sociopathic urge to, you know, do this one horrible deed uh, essentially contrasted with his fairly, you know, quote unquote normal relationship with his wife and his and, and his two daughters like, where he's buying an isolated house and he's clearly planning to entrap a woman and presumably kill a woman. Well, but isn't it just, and again, like we're, we're getting almost into the weeds here and almost not into the, the ending, but some of the psychology of it. And, you know, I, I've, I've written about mm-hmm. this. I don't know how much you guys have thought about it. When you look at the family man that he is, and then you think about what he says, because we, we should, you know, for people who haven't seen it, or if you have, you remember that when Rex and Raymond do come together after this long period where Raymond has kind of been like taunting him and sending him letters and supposedly spying on him, like there's this long section where it's sort of, you know, Rex is searching for Saskia through the media and privately and Raymond is observing him and he wants to reach out and tell him, but obviously he also doesn't want to like, you know, get the shit beaten out of him or killed by this this woman's boyfriend orchestrates a situation where he feels safe, where he feels he has the upper hand, and then they go on this drive where he kind of explains what happened. But before he explains what happened, he kind of explains himself, right? And if you really Mm -hmm. think about what he says, where he says, uh, uh, in order to prove to myself that this act of heroism he had done where he saved a kid from drowning, which also is a floating doll, Allah, don't look now, by the way. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like I had to conceive of the worst thing I could. Because when you think about what he does, it's pretty small scale. You know, we're talking about him as one of the all-time movie sociopaths. And, you know, like, what's one woman abducted from a gas station, right? I mean, we're talking about a movie that's supposed (laughs) to be the most horrible movie of all time, or it has that hype to it. Think about the fact that he's happily married with two daughters. Then think about what he decided to do. Yeah. On 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 top of the fact that he says he's claustrophobic, right? I mean, it's... (laughs) <laughs> really horrible. It's really horrifying. Yeah, that he would that that that's what he chooses to do, given that he's a happy parent who loves and dotes on his little girls. You know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's an amazing example of that where he it shows the entire preparation of him just doing it by himself. He he has a fake conversation with a person that isn't there. He practices like doing the headlock to use the chloroform. He he does whatever. Else. Oh yeah, and then all, all this, that stuff where he's just like mundanely calmly just being like you know like you know doing mm-hmm. that stuff where he's like egging the girls on and the wife to scream at the spiders to test if the neighbors could hear it or carrying yeah. the mattress into the cellar. You know actually journaling and figuring out the travel time margins for how long a woman, you know, needs to have chloroform put on her face and how long, you know, she can actually be driven in a car like before she becomes like logistically a problem. And and Jamie, you're yeah. talking about like the pickup tactics thing oh, where he's yeah. like actually being like, how do I navigate her to this side of the car and how do I get her to, to do this for me? It's like this very I unremarkable think- kind of like everyday middle-aged dad version of like angst or like yeah. Henry portrait of a serial yeah. killer in like a kind of darkly funny way. And the, I think the most perverse cut that they do with this is after he shows you this entire preparation in the driveway, he 
he picks up his daughter in this exact same car and they yes. have the same movement. And he practices where he, on her, right? Yeah. In, in a way. Yeah. Cause he, <laughs> he puts her in the car and then he, it just show it's, I think it's the way the camera moves really and just follows him because he, he, he opens the car door for her and then he goes around it just yep. like he does later when he's preparing the chloroform for the one woman that I think eventually fails. And, 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 he, and he even time. touches her nose or whatever. And the daughter goes like, why did you do that? You know, right. Like, <laughs> right. And so I, I th- that that was one of the most like just perverse cuts, and it's so simple. She does say something like, you know, something's up, or do you have a mistress, or something like that. So she d- does kind of. Yeah, it's a normal at your that, age, right? To like, you know, figure to find a different hobby or to you know well, do something. Well, <laughs> exactly, and 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 he's and he's braided this obsession into his into his family life in a way that it doesn't even intrude on it. Mm-hmm. Right, and and because he's if, this imperious, this empiricist, he's this brilliant planner. But when you go back to the past, and it really is, it's the most absorbing passage in the movie, and I think it's one of the greatest passages in any thriller I've ever seen. Is all the stuff about him. That's why I find the film so disturbing. If we're getting down to brass tacks about it, it's it's when he talks about being a kid and being on the balcony and being like, the universe says I won't jump, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, well, I. What if I just do? And that's it. I mean, that's- I love his philosophy, which, yeah, which, which combines with his other philosophy, which is you start with an idea in your head and then you yeah. just take one step towards it. You, 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 you take you, a second you, step towards it. And soon, you know, you're, you're partway there. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. at it. <laughs> it, it's one of the most persuasive. He's got grind set a little it's bit. One, grind set. It's one of the most persuasive descriptions <laughs> or depictions or explanations I've ever seen in a movie or a book or any work of fiction of like what the sociopathic um, brain might be. Not mm. because it's strange and unknowable like Hannibal Lecter, but it's actually just kind of like, well, that's fair enough. I mean, I guess if you believe that the universe isn't predetermined, nothing is stopping you from doing anything. And that yep. the same yep. impulse that makes him jump to save the drowning little girl, which makes him a hero to his family, which he he realizes he's kind of an imposter. Like he didn't do anything great. It was instinct. You know, I mean, he's yeah. nuts. So he he's was like, just more willing to jump because he, he had more already trained to jump himself to do it. He trained yeah. himself to do it. So he's obviously nuts where he's like, after saving that little girl's life, I'm like, I should probably go kill somebody to balance the scales. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the yin yang, it's been, it, there's a disbalance. You know, the movie, the movie, the movie never pretends that what he's character. doing. Yeah. The movie never <laughs> pretends that what he's doing makes, makes moral sense, but it really is just the hair's the hairline fracture in the brain of an otherwise like really smart, thoughtful, conscientious person. And it, it gives me just shivers to think about it. That yeah. well, and, and the movie does a great job of making it like the mystery is not who did it as it would be in yeah. another version of this film. They, the movie tells you up front who did it. So the tension of the film does become the analysis of this precise psychology and the search for a logistical answer in the face of that to be like, what kind of thing could this guy have done? We've seen all the things that he would do in order to accomplish this to pull this off but like where else does his brain take him and the movie is sort of structured in this non-linear way to keep going back and forth between you know this guy's planning and this guy's feeling about ultimately what happened after and the absence in the middle is what he actually did right and that ultimately does become what really does obsess rex three years later when he is plastering the face everywhere he's and, so haunted by by this and you know but but in a very very unhealthy way as and Adam rex, already putting it <laughs> and rex and rex could give a shit about all the 
confession stuff, which is hilarious. Definitely. Rex is like in a car with someone who's basically confessing to being absolutely bonkers. And yeah. <laughs> he hates him. And he clearly knows that he did something to his girlfriend, but he has to keep in his company and in his confidence because he needs to know what happened. And the dread in the viewer, I honestly think is not, it's similar to don't look now. The dread in the viewer is not, I don't know where this is going. The dread in the viewer is, I know exactly where this is. Yeah, totally. And and, and why is Rex so dumb? But then it makes you, (laughs) but, 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 but then it's leavened by the fact that we all have these things that we would need to, 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 to know, we all have things that we know better, but we still question. And in that sense, Rex is hugely relatable. Mm-hmm. He is an ex- existential figure, man. Like, like you can't blame him. Uh, and where do all of our obsessions lead us? Well, they lead us to the last scene of this movie, which is horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, well, and, and, and I like too that, you know, he, he does absolutely bring this entire experience on himself. He is totally. 100% receiving these postcards from this abductor telling him to meet him. And he is just as, you know, his girlfriend points out to him, you are just obeying him. You are yeah. just doing exactly what these things are telling you to do. And he's like, you know, I can feel he's watching me. I feel, I know that I can, you know, I can do something here. I can find something about this. And I think at one point he also mentions, you know, what I'm most afraid of is is that this guy dies and mm-hmm. stops sending postcards like ultimately like this experience and you know as much as it is you know clearly troubling him and kind of obsessing him it is a thing that he is ad- addicted to in that way he he reminds me a lot of in a less uh, or in, in a, in a thornier way, kind of the Jake Gyllenhaal character in Zodiac, where he does like really start to kind of deteriorate Abs- with this experience of this, you know, finding this thing out. Mm-hmm. I, 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 absolutely. Yeah, to- totally. All right, Jamie, go ahead. Uh, I just, I thought it was really interesting too, that he eventually says essentially, if not the same line that and reasoning that Raymond gives for jumping off the balcony where he says, yeah. well, it's like, I'm predestined. So give me the drink and he, and he drinks. Yeah. It. So there's this, like it, there is kind of this implication that he well, these two guys are sociopath. Adam said not it, like, they're, they're complimenting each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I find that interesting because it, it lines up with everything else we've discussed where it's like, he doesn't by the end really feel like he's really doing it for Saskia. It's all based on his own selfish impulses and, and just uh, the uncertainty. What one I love no, that's the, why line, I, uh, the eternal uncertainty. That is just yeah. unbelievable. And, and that's why creepy. I love all those scenes with, with his girlfriend three years later, who is like telling mm-hmm. this to his face. Yeah. She's like, we could just be on a beach enjoying life somewhere. Like what yep. do you like? What is like, like take this to its logical conclusion. And it is the same as the Donald Sutherland character. And don't look now it is. He feels, how this ends before he knows the precise details of it but he that doesn't stop him literally walking into it like a mouse going into a trap you know (laughs) which is which is why to get to the last scene which is you know famous or infamous or whatever else where he you know wakes up in this grave the number of horrible things that you as a viewer are realizing simultaneously is really quite amazing i mean yeah you're you're thinking of her Mm -hmm. right Yep. Oh, yeah. You're th- he's thinking of her. You're experiencing this with him. The camera's in this, like, you know, six square foot claustrophobic space. 
you're in the worst possible thing that a movie can imagine all the way back to Vampire by Dreyer, which is like, what if you were alive and mm. dead at the same time? What if you were in your own coffin? What if you knew that this was where you were going to die? And, you know, I mean, it's, that, it, that, it's Schrodinger's girlfriend is the concept of Schrodinger's girlfriend. But also, <laughs> but, but, but also when you detach it from all the specifics and the specifics are what makes it a horrifying thrillers, you know, the granular procedural reality of it. But the larger point is really not specific to the movie. And this is, again, getting into that, like, you know, maybe I'm saying too much about why these movies upset me. But, I mean, like, this is all roads lead there. I mean, you're probably not going to get buried alive when you die. But there is sort of the question of, like, when you do come to some recognition of the end or when the end is in sight, it's like, how have I spent my time? You know? What did I do to you? You can't avoid going here. But it's like, what route did I take to get here? Did I take the, uh, the, the, you know, what was the most, did I accidentally take the most direct fucking route to, to, <laughs> to, 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 to this moment? And that to getting line, to the horrible nightmare that we were both communicating to one yeah. another about meeting somewhere in space and imprisoned in isolation in complete darkness, you know, like, like they, like all of the visions were there. All of the feelings were there. We know to avoid this. And it was like, he completely ignored all of those base instincts that would tell you don't go to this place. <laughs> well, and, and, in the, and in the don't look now sense, you could argue that he and Saskia or Saskia have second sight because, you know, she's like, hey, I dreamed I was in an egg and so were you. And it's a bit like we were both buried in coffins. We should probably be careful. You know, I mean, it actually is yeah. a wonderful <laughs> pairing, pair, pairing with don't look now in that sense. But, I, I, you know, it, I, I'll never get the line reading out of my head. It is the moment where he just says he's yelling first to hope someone's going to hear him, which we know that they won't. Right. Mm-hmm. And he just yeah. says, I'm yeah. Rex, I'm Rex Hoffman. And this is a little weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is, his name, I believe his own name, like his identity almost. Yeah. His identity, which is a variation on, you know, what a bloody silly way to die. Like, <laughs> sure, and, this is, yeah. and this is, and this is a little weird. And the filmmaker is both very ruthless in trapping you in that space uh, but then he doesn't sort of dwell for a sadistic length of time. You get the compression, the poetic compression of the lighter going out, right? Which mm-hmm. is all we kind of need to see. We don't need to spend time watching him suffocate to death. And then you have the coda at the end where, you know, Raymond's yeah. there with his family. And, the Faustian you know, price is very clear instantly. <laughs> yeah, the Faustian <laughs> price is clear instantly. It does seem to take instantly. a little bit of uh, solace in... Um seeing Saskia or at least this vision of like the end of the tunnel uh, yeah, being, being, being connected in her in a really on, sick way obviously to her experience that's right right exactly I was just, yeah I was just gonna say it's like which is funny just because we know the context of that scene which is that he's about to approach her very upset and uh at, at a certain point you know he abandoned her so th- seeing that as the last thing you see but also he's almost taking a little bit of uh uh, calmness in it, I guess, in in a, in a way, um, is interesting. Again, I think he's just yeah. a very selfish character. Like he, he he's still kind of lacking the the empathy of Saskia's uh, experience, even as he's going through the exact same thing. So it's. Um, very interesting that yeah. way. Yeah, all, all I think about during that scene, honestly, which is, you know, p- part of it is, the, you know, you're getting this exact, you know, you're getting all of these converging elements of he he brought himself here, he's experiencing what she went through. We're obviously mm-hmm. imagining the exact case of events that she went through. But I do end up thinking of that, 
the final scene that we actually do get with her when we do see him entrap Saskia after, you know, after oh, Ray sure. has done all of these various rehearsals that, you know, to where to to pick up various women that have been kind of failing him and, you know, the, the, revealing it to kind of be a little bit ridiculous and a little bit silly. And we see the repeat of essentially the fateful day at the gas station from his perspective with more of, you know, his kind of like praying voyeurism kind mm-hmm. of elemented into it a bit. And his attempt to chloroform a woman, which gets his pulse racing so hard, he accidentally sneezes into his own chloroform handkerchief, which then totally oh, yeah. and which he which he just can't help but go into the bathroom and laugh about it that it just like how horribly wrong that that went but that target failing is what brings him to Saskia and he doesn't even actually make moves on her it is actually her just being kind of you know open and charming kind. and yeah. going up to him and being like can I borrow change and trying her beginner's French on him and yeah. liking his keychain with a letter R like it's all of these sort of like you know just again the, that random chaos element that you know sort of Rogue yeah. was getting at with, 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 with Don't Look Now but the worst detail for me and the one that creeps me out the most and I think about during that scene when he's in that box is when she feels safe to get into that car because of the photo of him with his oh, family. Oh, yeah, I you was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, totally, dude. That is the thing that's stuck in my brain. I've watched, this This is the third time I've watched this movie in five years. I keep coming back to this movie, and that is just the one that and you know, I, 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 freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, and there's so many scenes before it where he's they, they actively show you with his family, having the family life. And it seems, you know, although we know how, how he is, really, that it's a happy you know, a, a decent family that loves and respects each other. And so when you see Saskia just take that in and he, he, she gets this like smile where she's like, oh, I can trust this guy. It's so disheartening. It's unbelievably terrifying. And, um, and not to mention just the visceral scene itself when he's actually doing it. You see her like eyes realize what's happening and it's just, oh my God, it's it's horrifying. Yeah, it, 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 it's people playing into the pattern and into yeah. the sort and of the, obeying thing, right? Like the it's, dialogue. It's saying uh just if i hadn't sneezed just dot dot yeah. dot that's it and it's like saskia ends up being the new target it's just it's a yeah it's so but, random uh, but i mean that scene with the, the the family shot yeah it's 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 horrific i'm gonna reiterate to me what makes it horrific is that in any i mean again i'm, I'm not redeeming raymond here but like mm-hmm. in, in any, in any, I love I th- that you've had to say that kind of multiple times. <laughs> I think in, I think in any other context, someone would be safe in getting in his car because that's how thin the line is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That mm-hmm. teeny tiny hairline fracture insanity uh, in his, in his sanity, which is why I find it more disturbing than any number of more florid or even realistic portrayals of, sociopathology they found the exact idea here which is that someone has just kind of they figured out the universe they figured out that just don't do what's expected and nothing can stop you like nothing can stop you no one's watching there's no higher power watching clearly there's going to be no punishment and then what's funny about the character is he has such a limited desire with which to express that he just wants to do the one thing it's Mm -hmm. like a make it's like a make work project and what ends up happening with Rex maybe betrays the fact that he's actually more bloodthirsty than he thinks. But there is also a sense in which, as an empirically minded guy, he's kind of putting he's Rex out him. of his own misery and kind of helping him, which yeah. is yeah. one of the. No, 100 fr- percent. Like he, he views himself as like, I've created this hole. Yeah. How do I fix it? 
Yes, you know, and, in that's, a way. and that's you know, a and that's a, thrill, a <laughs> and that's a thriller trope that I adore. I mean, it's very similar on a wider scale to something like Kyoshi Kurosawa's Cure, right? Where you have For this sure. guy who's sort of like, how can I, how can I help these people? People are obviously very upset. <laughs> I help these people. And I think in both movies, there's a little bit of confusion maybe between, you know, altruism and narcissism. And maybe in both movies, you know, or, 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 in, or in The Vanishing, he's a little too, you know, cut and dry about this insane, you know, calcul- moral calculus that he's made. But I think the fact that he normally would be a perfectly safe person to take a drive with is what makes it even worse. Yeah. It's because she is just she is just collateral damage, not in the sense of running into not just the wrong person, but like the wrong person on the exact wrong day, on the exact wrong time. In the mm-hmm. one yeah. moment where he's like deciding to do this shit. And yeah. uh it stayed it stayed with me my whole life thinking about that. And it um and it does feed your curiosity as a viewer too to watch the whole thing, which is then what he's exploiting in 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 Rex. So, yeah. And, and it does um, imply, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I just got from the way that it kind of faded into the backyard and everything. Is it implied that it, they're buried in his backyard? Or is that just kind of, because uh, after the after they go back to Raymond, um, it's showing the the family, like the daughters kind of pouring water on the, the grass and the flowers and stuff. I think, and I thought yeah. it was supposed to be this kind of perverse cut. Th- th- that was my implied yeah. reading from when he was testing for the screams on the property. So yeah, then when sure. it's them screaming yeah. in the box, then, you know, yeah. it was him being like, yeah, none of the neighbors will hear this, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah because, yeah. you know, because again, you start thinking about it, it's like, how long will they yell for before they die? Hours? Yeah. You know, like it's got to be pretty remote. He's got to be pretty sure no one's going to hear it. And there's something so terrifying about him just sitting there kind of like the job has been done and he will most likely get away with it. And now he's just going to really he the implication of the film just based on his own inner dialogue and everything is that he actually won't kill again and now he's no. just going to be able to have this this idyllic family life on a well, the world is balanced now. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly the world is now balanced because he, because so he saved scary. a kid and then he and then he killed a girl and then look he actually left the world unbalanced by killing this girl for this guy but now the guy has been found balanced he and he's helped him do it he's yeah, actually he's done, done a service both and sides this is, of morality <laughs> saved a life and took a life yeah and then and this is why without getting again too deep in the weeds about it i just want to just briefly relate an anecdote which is that right at the height of the pandemic in may of 2021 i did an online lecture on this film for something called the miskatonic university right which is uh you know it's a it's a it's a it's a website and a that, that, that does like lectures and writing on horror films, right? And I just happened mm-hmm. to sort of tweet that I was preparing this lecture. And I'm like, I was thinking about Spurless and like, it seems like it's actually kind of an evil movie. And, you know, three years and 40,000 Twitter responses literally later, this is usually <laughs> the biggest tweet I ever did because people were so fascinated by this idea of like, what is an evil movie? Is an evil movie about an evil person? Is it about something I don't like? Is it a matter of ideology? Is it aesthetics? <laughs> are you like a fucking child by saying that? I remember answering if footmen tire you, what will horses which is, do was my which is, response which, for Which is a great movie. answer. And and I also, in addition to getting, in addition to getting like 40,000 responses i think at one point i tweeted stop debating the precise ontology of evil in my mentions and that got like yeah. <laughs> thirty thousand retweets but but what i mean about the vanishing is in some ways you mentioned if footman tire you like there's a hundred movies that are more transgressive you know mm-hmm. 
And yeah. probably another hundred movies where worse things happen and another mm-hmm. hundred movies that are more violent. This movie's got like kind of a cheesy synthesizer score and it's an undistinguished director. Oh, and but like, it's great though. Oh, it's great. It, 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 it sounds like a nineties era Cronenberg or a Goyan, yeah. like a crash or exotic yeah. uh, B side, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that like, you know, to call like, you know, criterion spine number, whatever, yeah, you know, true. like yeah. the most evil movie. Ever well, hey, it's got the seem... locked in 1.6 ratio. That's pretty artsy. <laughs> I on. just, I, I just mean, it makes you seem like pretty norm. <laughs> makes you seem pretty norm core. Like what kind of a, sleaze, <laughs> what kind of a sleazoid are you? If you like the van, Vanishing is, you know, like at the absolute precipice of evil. But is I the do... start to Spooktober? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but 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 what I mean is, I truly believe with within all that, and we've been talking through it. That idea that it puts into the world and puts into the view. Oh, it's a but... psychotic idea. Like, and and, and it yeah. methodically gets you to kind of identify with it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, which is which is why I think you want to know. <laughs> It has it has genuinely malign vibes. Mm-hmm. Not about aesthetics. It's not about content. It's not about gore. It's not about ideology. Really, it's like kind of pulpy, you know, serial killer psychology. But the scene where he's on the balcony as a kid and it's just like, well, is it will that I won't jump? Okay, I'll jump. And yep. then everyone yep. thinks about and doing that because without being too creepy about it, we all think that stuff. People mm-hmm, yeah. do at when they're kids, especially you're like standing on the subway tracks or you're, you know, like diving board or something. You're like, mm-hmm. what, what, what's going to happen? I think yeah, and, you're, fact- and, and you're educated about what taboos are, what boundaries, you know, yeah. and you're, you know, and, and it was just uh, like, well, this guy didn't have that. <laughs> and so yeah, this movie, this movie's way of putting that out in there. I, I, I think it reaches some inner ring of malevolence for, for me, movie wise. Sorry, Jamie, what were you saying? Uh, well, there was two things. One was just the, um, it kind of like, it puts you in that perspective as an audience member that even when, once you hit the point where you kind of know at least the answer is death, you're still in that, there's still a part of you that's like, but I want to know exactly how. Yeah, so absolutely. you're you're honestly, you're just rooting well, that, for the Well, that's the genius structurally of the movie, right? Because uh, yeah, it, exactly. is, it, it, it is it is giving him the thing that you want. It's giving him the thing that Rex wants. And it is being like, how far are you willing to sit in a car and listen to this guy psychoanalyze <laughs> himself and yeah. rant about his life in order to get that, We're, even though, you know, Rex couldn't, give less of a shit when he's sitting in the car yeah, when he's, you know, or that bit when Ray is just like climbing on something. Like he's at like a child's like jungle gym talking love, about like cycling or whatever. I love, oh, I, I love <laughs> what that. A, what stuff. a detail. <laughs> yeah. Like we're basically just rooting for Rex to die at a certain point. The, the, the movie is forcing you to do that in a way. And that is, that's, that's kind of evil in, in a very uh, entertaining way. And also just kind of a, I don't know. It makes you, it does make you feel uneasy. It really does make you question even kind of yourself and like why you're watching what you're watching after you kind of know mm-hmm. where it's leading to even, but we're just like, I, I still want to see its conclusion. Just like, well, just yeah, like one, one review I loved reading was actually Dave cares review, uh, which was a very actually negative take on the film, but which I think was in the best case scenario of negative reviews, like absolutely correctly, diagnosing and identifying what the film is is doing which is he says yet in the end the film punishes the audience for wanting to have its questions answered which yeah. i think is absolutely well, true and i think what makes the film so that's fascinating what's good. yeah that's that's why it's good <laughs> no it, it, um, it, 
you know, and I think about that image. It's like we, we guys were telling you mentioning earlier, you know, this idea of him with the task completed, sitting in his backyard, wondering, you know, what he's going to do again. And I think that that performance is very underrated because there's a whole bunch of things playing across his face at that moment. But, you know, the one that's not there is satisfaction, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think that that idea between like fulfillment and satisfaction or climax and culmination and satisfaction is again, a very fine distinction because mm-hmm. this is one of those movies like seven, is another good example. I think seven owes a lot to this movie, whether it knows it or not. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Kara was saying where it's like, as a viewer, if it ended any other way, which is what we can talk about the remake, like there really is no point to watching this. Yeah. And when it does converge and ends the way it is, all it does is punish you and make you feel bad, but at least it's it's coherent. It's satisfying. Yeah. It you it, it gives you your money's worth, which sort of leads you to wonder what do we want out of these movies? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What am I? So, spending so, so my t- money t- on? tell me, tell me <laughs> Why do quickly, because I because I, I know we're we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here soon. But before we do, tell me the the remake. From what I understand, he changed the ending, which seems to me look, the most idiotic decision yeah, that, anyone could possibly make if you're remaking this movie. <laughs> here's, what I'll, here's what I'll say. I said this in the lecture I did on the film for Miskatonic. I wrote about this in my piece on the Ringer, and I believe this. You know, if I I never got to interview Sleazer, I would have asked him this. So the, the 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 quick version of the remake is the new girlfriend is a much bigger character, right? She's in the in, in the American film. The killer is Jeff Bridges, who's terrible. We won't go into how bad he is. It's one, oh one really? Wow. Now, that's unfortunate to hear. It's, yeah, with, yeah. With, with like Bridges. with like with like a weird bolt like like Albanian accent. It doesn't matter. Interesting. And the, it, it, he's terrible. And the protagonist is Kiefer Sutherland. The kidnappee is a very young, very oh Sutherland connection. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There uh, you go. Very, Don't uh, look now too. There you go. Uh, <laughs> a very, a, a very young, very cute Sandra Bullock plays the Saskia character, mm. um, and uh, Nancy Travis plays the girlfriend, who's a much bigger character, to the point where she doesn't abandon him. Kind of like in, interjects herself into the movie, figures out what's happening, and like literally protects him and rescues him from the coffin. Oh, that I oh, okay, yeah, already don't fuck. like that. Wait, wait, yeah, wait, I, wait, I, wait, I, I love the fact that they are dislocated in the frame in this with the poster of Saskia in between them, yeah. and him and her just knowing what her place is in the relationship, and just and then, being like, "I'm gone." And then, <laughs> and then, not only that, but then she gets imperiled, and then she ends up like threatening the Bridges character by because she knows his daughter and then you end up getting like a shovel what? fight you, you, you get like a shovel fight all at the cottage it's this is all like the melodramatic things we were saying that this one <laughs> avoided <laughs> so so hold on it's you know so it's, it's the same movie up to the cottage at which point it becomes a totally different movie and one where even if you haven't seen the original film because it's a not got enough muscle memory of the first movie that like the first hour is quite watchable you mm-hmm. know I mean, Bridges like the gas station fucking, scene and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, Br- Bridges is fucking awful, but <laughs> but but, and it's rare because he's good in everything. Yeah, so that's truly. So, so, you know, I, mean, I love Jeff Bridges, but you know, then it's like the movie kind of has this psychic break, and if you've seen the original, I mean, at that point, you honestly want to like bury yourself alive, and even <laughs> if you haven't, even if you haven't seen the original, you're like, this is pretty bad. So here's my thesis on this, which is that. George Sweezer knew he had made a masterpiece. We had to logically conceive of the worst thing he could possibly do. <laughs> oh, wow. He went Ray mode. Okay, scale, I see. He actually yeah. went Raymond mode. Took, <laughs> took, took this film that is perfect 
and that means so much to him. I put this out into the world, but there's a disbalance. I need he, to correct he, this. I need to make it by making the worst. Five. And he took it and he ruined it in the he ruined it himself. Oh my god, that's by funny. his wow. by his own hand. The only person because if someone else ruined it, you could say, "Oh, Hollywood is stupid." Or that yeah. director is stupid, or that producer made him do it. He basically is like, I am going to murder and bury my own movie. I'm going to act as if I completely don't understand what I did the first time, but in such close proximity to just remaking it. This is <laughs> it's so it's so fascinating because it's the same movie. So it's not like he wanted to reimagine the material. Right. And he never said there was anything wrong right. with the first one. I'm trying to imagine this movie now as Rex just sitting at like the cafe, French cafe table and just having Sleezer like okay. in the background looking over, on, movie, uh, sitting on the balcony, looking down, being like, I'm going to fucking kill this. The, thing. Movie, <laughs> the movie the movie, literally ends with Sutherland and Nancy Travis having survived their ordeal. And, you know, they're now in love at a restaurant and the waiter brings them coffee. They're like, we don't drink coffee now because, you know, the coffee is... Is, is, oh you know. my god! Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not. I'm, it I'm was not, predestined I'm not, I'm not, to be great, so he had to destroy it. It's he just, had to. Oh. He had to destroy. It. He had to destroy it himself, That's and he great. had to destroy it in the ways that would really destroy it. Oh Fucking my god. coffee I'm, machines. I'm, That's I'm where it ends. ends? I'm perplexed the, by this. The <laughs> theory is I'm 100 percent subscribed to it. Because <laughs> when I because because you know when I was a kid, a VHS kid. You know, my mom had the VHS of The Vanishing because it was like a very serviceable, you know, blockbuster video kind of movie. And it actually kind of did okay, right? And this was a different era where, like, not everyone and their friend, you know, knows what Spurlos was. It was it, it was a hit, but I, it hadn't even put on DVD by Criterion. No, and, and, and they, they couldn't get the Oscar nomination either because they didn't. it had too much French language in it. It, had too it didn't much, have enough. Yeah. Yeah. Had, 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 had too much had, Yeah, so... It was like The Vanishing, the 93 one, was like kind of a movie that normal people had seen. And in my house, I mean, my mom is where I got all my movie taste from. She obviously knew the difference and knew the Dutch one was bad, but like she wasn't above watching the other one. And mm. I actually can't, I don't know if I saw the American one, at least in parts first. But much like the Hanukkah Funny Games, it's really, really, really close, like photographically. Mm -hmm. And texturally, and even the score, which makes it an insane gesture. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Like I'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be. It'd be like if Bong Joon Ho remade Parasite, <laughs> and like at the end they all just like agreed to live in the house together <laughs> in, har in, in in harmony. Or if uh, has, has, and, and, and like Ethan Hawke is like the dad or something, you know, and, like, and, 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 and Ethan Hawke is the dad. <laughs> or if like they decided to remake Don't Look Now and then like the cops bust in at the end and arrest the dwarf. Because it's not a misunderstanding of the material. It's like a deliberate perversion of the material by the person who fucking made it. Yeah. That's I think it's wild. one of the most. I think it's one of the most interesting remakes ever, and and the and the <laughs> lack of a, and the lack <laughs> of a big filmography by him around it makes it even more interesting because it's like I'm imagining this world where George Sleazer is just living like Raymond with this incredibly compulsive 
frustration that he made this masterpiece and he has to like do something about it because it's just not okay. And I'm like, maybe that's why he understood the craziness of Raymond so well, because truly maybe he's nuts in the same way. I mean, I'm being semi facetious, but I also think it's such a strange artifact. You kind of have to reckon with its existence. There's so many American remakes that ruin European movies. It's almost like he's trying to play with that cliche. Yeah. Like, oh, you want to see a you want to see someone ruin a movie? Here we go. Here's my American version. (laughs) Because what I am because I'll say what I am not prepared to accept. I am like Rex. I could not accept this. I I could not accept that the American remake is actually the movie he wanted to make, and the Mm -hmm. Dutch one was like a happy fluke. Like if that like 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 if somehow he's like I got it wrong the first time and now I've made it better. My entire sense of aesthetics and taste is just broken and and, and i and i'm just i'm done i'm not watching movies anymore because it's too horrible for too horrible for me to contemplate that it's backwards right he's like oh man you wouldn't believe it they made me have that ending but now i have the i have the really great finale we need to believe in suzier's genius we just have to we have to. Yeah. Be, anyway, if anyone's if anyone wants to watch the American Vanishing, it's pretty easy to see, and it's a trip. <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested now. <laughs> very interested. I can't wait to get mad as it progresses. Yeah, but uh, briefly returning back to the original Vanishing, just before we wrap up here, if we're pivoting towards the reductive rating round, I think this one's still gonna land in like the Jamie Four territory for me. But again, yeah. this is one that this is the third time I've watched it in five years. The first time I watched it, it was at the now semi-defunct uh, Royal Theater here in Toronto. I hadn't, I didn't know what it was. It just happened to be playing and there, nobody showed up to it. I basically watched it almost by myself at in, in the theater and I have just not been able to kind of get this film out of my head since. It's, it's, yeah. it's haunting in a very kind of plain and literal and matter of fact way that I find more skin crawling and hypnotic than if this had been cranked up to more traditional suspense or melodramatic uh, degrees. And I don't know, it's an amazing combo of just like, uh, like ice cold kind of clinical patience to about it that just methodically converges with the intense sort of like male obsession and, and sociopathy in both of these characters, which we did jokingly compare to, but it genuinely it is like Pacino and De Niro in heat in terms of structural, these two figures are going to run into one another, but it is done in this like philosophical sort of enigma of a gravitational pull that these two men have towards one another. One needing information, one having information and the way that it just manages to turn that in the kind of fragmented nonlinear sort of haunted memory structure of the whole thing into this, I don't know what you could call Nietzschean Faustian experience of here is how you are going to get this closure. Here is how this void of existential isolation and uncertainty is going to end. And it's something that you identify with. It's something that the, that the character is obsessed with to a deteriorating and an unsympathetic degree to an extent. And yeah, just taking all of that and making this, you know, such a, 
you know, otherwise kind of sunny, kind of leisurely movie. <laughs> and it's just, it is genuinely like, it is a thriller, it is horror, it is scary. And everything about it, the observational nature of the roaming camera, the unconventionally mundane way it accumulates information in detail about these men. And of course, you know, the harrowing predestined kind of trick of an ending that it ends up playing on you that, you know, once again is screamingly obvious in tone and in texture. And when you rewatch the film, you know, you, you don't need the shock of the film. I feel like you watch it a second time and everything you're just like, oh, how did I not? You know, if it does trick you the first time, you're like, how did it trick me? You know, yes. this is obviously where all this was going. And this guy to, it deliberately ignored the signs to get himself there. And the movie doesn't give us what you want, but it also does kind of give you what you want at the same time in a really evil and perverse way. So to, I don't know. I've I keep coming back to this one. So well, to circle back with the very beginning of the odd, you know, mentioned how much Stanley Kubrick liked the movie. Right. Yeah. Funny and funny to think that within his body of work. Maybe the the movie that indicates that he liked it is not the one he made previously, The Shining. As Sweezer said, "What is a vanishing?" He says, "Even though those Tyrion, shots of the cars near the beginning, yeah, yeah, are yeah. not dissimilar, right? They're, they're not dissimilar." <laughs> I mean, Sweezer said, "You know, vanishing isn't really a word." He he named it after The Shining, The Vanishing, The Shining. Yep. But you know, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut was trying to get at some of this stuff, minus the disappearance, just that mm-hmm. male. N- nature of jealousy and obsession and needing ne- needing to know you know the fact that that might even be somewhere in the dna of a kubrick movie due to his admiration i think you know speaks volumes about what a but what a piece of filmmaking it is and the little livers of cheesiness in it like you know the cinematography sometimes has been described as being a bit bland some of the supporting supporting parts are a little goofy But, I mean, I think it's still a five-star movie. Or it's a four-star movie that I'm going to take a star from some other movie that someone else likes. I'm going to stick it it on there just to make sure it gets gets the full five. No, I I feel the same way. I I feel like I'm going to keep coming back to this, and I feel like I'm just going to kind of grow and age into this one a little bit. I feel like the closer I get to relating uh, as it sounds like you <laughs> you do to the the middle-aged bearded man uh, oh, it, it might it might end up kind of oh, getting now, to now, now, not to call now, you out <laughs> now 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 you're putting words in my mouth i do i do have two daughters and we are we are we are going to the cottage this weekend but i but i but i but i but i, but I, but I will say it is uh, i mean to to me it's one of those movies where and kind of Don't Look Now is the same, though I think Don't Look Now cinematically is much more extraordinary. Like, there are passages of The Vanishing that I think I could probably watch once a day, you know? Mm-hmm. That long car ride between the two of them and the way he's narrating and talking about his, his childhood history, I mean, these these transcend whatever small flaws are within the movie. Passages that are good are so extraordinary. I yeah. don't see how I don't see how it's anything other than an all timer and it's super fun um, to talk about. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm also I'll keep it short, but I, I'm going to give it a, 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 a strong, strong four. I think it, I, probably the the old trademark Jamie four. Honestly, I think it could get to the five. I just need more time with it. But there's some, a couple highlights here that I that we didn't mention. I love the one line when he's questioning people at first in the gas station, where the girls just like, "There's thousands of people that come in here every day, and they're all strangers." 
Um, and it mm-hmm. just has that heavy implication of, especially the way he shoots it. It's so, so many wide shots. And like you said, Josh, so you can see people just moving around constantly in the background, doing whatever they're doing, especially the second time you watch it, you just find yourself kind of looking around. You're like, can I see Raymond somewhere? Is yeah, there's something so many else great happening? lines we don't even have time to get to. I loved the, I always dreamed of having a wife who loved numbers. Yeah. That one always sticks out to me too, for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it's all, most of it anyway, especially all the suspense, because uh, by the time you get to the nighttime, really, the answers are already there and you're just leading towards the death that you know is coming. Um, but th- so much of this is just in broad daylight, in public, surrounded by people. And that honestly makes it a little bit more terrifying. Like there's really no safety yeah, that's that net. Plane there's no quality. place to hide. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I did forget how much is focused on the first first time I watched it, how much was focused on Raymond. It does make me kind of buy in that like Sluzier really does uh, understand him in a way that is kind of terrifying. Um, <laughs> and he really does focus on uh, Rex's more kind of the, the more negative aspects of his personality too. Um, so th- there, there is something there that I find very uh, fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, it, and the, the ending, I like, like it's, the ending is deservedly the iconic you... for the reason that it is. Like I was joking, but genuinely it is Schrodinger's girlfriend. Like it, it literally oh, yeah. like it, 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 it's, it, it freaks me out in that same kind of philosophical exercise way. But then it is also the guy is buried alive in a coffin. And if you're someone who's sensitive to that, it's fucking scary logistically as well yeah, as existentially and, and philosophically. <laughs> and for me, it's, it's, it's almost like maybe not even the, the ending that, I'm wanting, but it's kind of the ending you're almost just asking for at a certain point because you're just on the ride and you like, like we've said a thousand times, we know it's happening and we don't obviously, we don't want Rex to make this decision. You're not just, you're not like Rex go die, but, um, there's just something in inside you as an audience member, knowing kind of this, this mystery, the suspense built into it that you're, you still want to see that answer and that end. So you're, you're just asking for it. Um, and he still uh, jumped, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and again, the, for me, my scene for some reason is the, um, the gas station scene that is just when she is taken, but you don't see anything for some reason that just absolutely terrifies me. The fact that you don't see it, he just, the, the timing of it is just what makes him realize it what happens he's going in the through. background while you're it's, not paying attention, you yeah, know, while you're, look, while as, you're taking photos of the car, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, as a, as a dude that, um, every once in a while is lucky enough to, to tour, uh, we go to a lot of gas stations with a lot of strangers and busy people. And there's just something so terrifying about that idea that it's like we get out of the RV and I might just not see a band member again or something. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it, it was really it, it's a fantastic film. So, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. For you, Adam, I'm assuming we already got it. Eddie, you got the five, five I think. Right? Well, as I yeah. said, it's, yeah. it's it's five or else I'm stealing stars from some other movie to. <laughs> to, 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 to give it to it. And I'm also going to say that the, the, the remake is like negative, negative five stars. <laughs> <laughs> a balance. A balance. So, we end, so we end up with this perfect, we end up with this perfect balance for sure. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for joining. I think that is going to wrap us up um, sure. this 
week. Uh, that was Don't Look Now from 1973 and The Vanishing from 1988. Adam, I know we, we already got you yawning. We already got you waiting for bed. <laughs> but if you've got anything to plug, if you've got anything coming out soon, any pieces or anything that you want to talk about, this is normally where we have guests drop I, those. Yeah, I mean, I'm writing a, writing a few things. I'm writing for a, a, a new kind of film salon screening site called Gallery, which... I did an AMA for them a few weeks ago about Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love, and they seem to be publishing pieces by some pretty good critics. It's like a site where filmmakers uh, curate, you know, uh, other films and pieces that they like, and then they have critics and other people come in and do essays and lectures. They're sort of launching as we speak. Uh, You know, it's it's a paid membership, but it's not expensive, and I think it's a beautifully laid out and designed. designed website and um writing for a new publication that i haven't written before i won't say what it is yet in case you know anything goes wrong with the piece but i'm trying to wrap my head around how to write about this film i saw at tiff called dream scenario which i ah. like which i like which i liked less i think than most people but i'm trying to think about why because it's not as if it was particularly bad so I'm sort of just trying to think about a way to write about that. Uh, Interesting. That, well, that, Jamie is very highly anticipating as the show's number one Nicolas Cage fan. And <laughs> that's I, right. I, 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 I do think that at the very least, even if, you know, there is definitely some stuff to talk about in terms of yeah. flaws, I kind of wrestled with it a little bit, too, and what it was satirically trying to say about any of the thing it's bringing up about fame or punishment or cancel culture, or all that kind of stuff. But I will say the thing that I did was won over by was Nicolas Cage as someone who loses control of his own image and someone who is, yeah, you yeah. know, Which and, 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 and how people kind of perceive him. It. Yeah. And his well, own reputation as an actor, right? He, he brings something to that in that movie, I think, which, yeah, we won't spoil, but like it's going to come out at some point that comes out this year, I assume. Right. Yeah, yeah, he said, uh, I think he said that he watched the whole thing where it was like Nicolas Cage freaks the fuck out and he had a lot of emotions about it. Like he's like, I don't want to be just viewed as that, but I also kind of am intrigued by the memification of my work. And like, there's a lot of emotions he was going through. He said, yeah, you know, he should have just done this and skipped the mass, the unbearable weight of massive. Yes, totally. exactly. He could have, he could have maybe turned that one down. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, other, but other than that, you know, fans of the show can just find me here, you know, cowering in my, cowering in my in my home with my children, watching the Blue Jays get <laughs> eliminated from the playoffs. That's how I plan to spend Aww. at least at least the next twenty four hours. And, <laughs> Have uh, hope. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And buy the book. The buy the oh. book. David Fincher, Mind Games. Uh, yeah, wait, till, wait, wait, wait till people find out what the next book is about. That that'll be a thing. But oh. I can't. I can't. I can't. Can't, can't say that yet. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know what? I will tease it by saying uh, the next book theoretically could include both of these movies. Ooh. Theoretically, oh, that's exciting! The- the- theoretically, could include these movies. It's called Naaman Core. It's about rigorously controlled evil movies. Procedurals. <laughs> rigorously, rigorously controlled evil movies that, after thinking about them for half an hour, you're just like, "Oh man, we're all gonna die." Uh, no, no, and the serial killers are kind of right, you know. <laughs> But no, no, not 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 about that. But uh, it'll be it'll be it'll be it'll be a, a, a maybe a bit of a contentious book, and we'll 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 see what happens. I should probably write it first. Uh, thank you, thank thank you guys for having me. Thanks no for problem. coming, man. This was awesome. For our listeners, we are going to be back in uh, one week's time where we are going to be jumping into the thick of Spooktober, and we're going to be oh, going yeah. a little bit more traditional with it. We're going to be moving away from thinking about death and exit. Well, actually, maybe not. 
you know, hold on. We're talking <laughs> De- about Edgar Allan Poe, so maybe not. Always be happening. It'll but. <laughs> it'll it'll be in 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 the realm. But we are we're gonna get a. I don't even want to say we're gonna get less artful. I'm not gonna say that about Roger Corman. Uh, yeah. You know, he did, did, did Nicholas Roeg uh, or Rogue. You know, shot to some of his movies. You know, he's very. You know, okay. I don't know how I'm gonna frame this. We're gonna go <laughs> into '60s spooky castles and Vincent Price in a, as as a mustachioed Edgar Allan Poe character in The Pit and the Pendulum. Um, and the House of Usher. So that is what we're going to be talking about in uh, one week's time. Now, I actually picked these because they're the ones that I haven't seen. So I actually can't give you a description beyond that other than I have a loose familiarity with uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And obviously we've talked about Roger Corman as both a producer and a director on this podcast before. Um, But the the main one I'm familiar of their collaborations is actually The Mask of Red Death, the one that Nicholas Rogue shot. Um, Mm. So uh, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to be getting with our uh, pals uh, with the pit and the pendulum and and the house of Usher, but I am excited to uh, jump into it. There's some 16th century like Spanish castles. Um, There's, uh, you know, something to do with family curses and melodramas. And so, you know, I'm sure we're going to get some good, some good stuff there. Yeah. I've really wanted to dive into more Vincent Price too. So just that in general, I'm excited for. Yeah, Vincent Price, one of those actors who I feel like has only come up in like the periphery so far. We've never done like bit, yeah, like we did the I, what was that crawler one that he did? Um, it was the one where they had were? like the meta theater moment where the the, the bugs were crawling oh, over right. the, actual, the tingler, the, the tingler. William Castle film. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's one of the classic era of Vincent Price's. We also did Witchfinder General, which yeah. kind of used his persona to a little bit more of a sort of like bleak historical degree. We've also talked about him in the very one of his very last performances, Dead Heat, where he is like the decrepit oh, yeah. <laughs> old man trying to reanimate bodies and shit like that. You know, absolutely. So. He's come up a couple times, but I'm excited to get to go back and talk about like two movies that he is really, really well known for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to talk about Vincent Price and Roger Corman next week. Really get into the spooky zone. And that's actually going to set us up for the main feed episode right before Halloween. Not the Halloween episode, but like the last main feed episode uh, where we're going to have a a very special guest on who is very excited to go spooky mode, Halloween (laughs) mindset. And I tasked him with coming up with a Halloween mindset double feature. And he took that to mean spooky stories spooky short stories specifically so one we're going to be talking about a major one that we haven't somehow got around to yet creep show hell yeah directed by george a romero obviously written by stephen king a bunch of uh, ec comics inspired um you know uh, uh five tales of terror brought to the screen you know is the idea and so we're going to be talking about that to get into halloween mindset and we're going to be pairing it with actually one of my favorite i think horror anthology films and the the uh entry in the italian horror because it wouldn't be a slezoid's spooktober without some italian horror we're going to be pairing that with black sabbath from 1963 directed by mario bava which is also three um you know sort of like short supernatural horror stories uh one of them being one of my favorite like horror stories in any like anthology movie uh one day we'll talk about quidon too which i think is actually Mm -hmm. maybe my favorite example of that kind of movie but the telephone in black sabbath is one of my absolute favorites and uh that one also has boris karloff 
um, in it as 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 well as well as Mark Damon, who I think was in some of the um, who I think might have been even in House of Usher as well with Roger Corman. So, yeah, either way, uh, Creepshow and Black Sabbath. We're going like spooky campfire story mode. Uh, That'll be both fun. in the the 1960s Italian Mario Bava version and the 1980s Stephen King and George A. Romero version. So that's going to really get us into the Halloween mindset, I think, in two weeks time. Yeah, I'm going to wear my costume while I watch these movies. That's how fucking pumped I'm going to be. That's right. Let's but go. uh yeah, and 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 also as always look forward to the Halloween virtual screening which uh we haven't uh, got I think announced yet, but by the time of listening to this, uh should be hopefully coming soon. We're going to be doing mm-hmm. uh we usually we usually do one normal $10 paid screening for all the patrons who who are with us every month, and typically we also try to squeeze in a free one for all of our listeners, not even just patrons, just all listeners. So Which is a um, lot of fun. So I'd highly recommend coming. Yeah, so pay attention to the free feed on the Patreon and also pay attention to the Twitter where we'll probably be announcing that as well. But definitely uh, near the end of this month, we are going to be doing a free virtual screening of some sort of uh, spooky movie as well. So look forward to that. Yeah. But lots of spooktober to come. And uh, we'll we'll see you guys through the whole thing. We'll, we'll be your guides through the creepy forests. Uh, keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Keep it spooky. <laughs>